fisherman. There's a serenity to it. There's you know the spiritual side of fishing. Anyone that fly fishes and has been doing it lifelong pursuit, they'll tell you, oh my God, it's this beautiful thing. Golfers, same thing. There's a spiritual side of it. AA is no different. There is this incredible peace and serenity that comes from once you get it down and you get the thing, and we don't talk about the thing a lot. When you have that moment of clarity, that burning bush experience, and you finally give up and just give in, and you do this thing, and you make it to the other side, if we are painstaking about this phase in our development, I wasn't painstaking the first go-around in the 80s. I was painstaking when I got here in the 90s because I didn't have any place else to go. This was it. So for me, there's this really cool spiritual side of AA that just changes and moves and kind of bobs and weaves with you. And it becomes less difficult. You become less involved with the grind. It just becomes this natural part of how you interact with the world out there in your day-to-day. And I'm super lucky, very fortunate, that I got to tap into that. My day can look however I want it to. I get up early. I'm very peaceful. I chill out at my house. I go deal with chaos all day long like everyone else. I go back home. I'm very peaceful. I'm very chill. My wife and I are very big on that inside our home, being peaceful. But it's this really cool thing. Now, I can mess my day up really bad anytime I want. I just reach over and grab that steering wheel and just fuck it all up. I mean, just so fast, so fast. But when I'm just in that right frame of mind and I'm super peaceful, I just let it all go. It's like that guy that's out there fly fishing, kicking it back and forth, got that perfect rhythm. Surfer that catches that wave, just perfect. The golfer has got that perfect swing or that perfect putt. That's what this is for me. It's just that pursuit that you have to grind for, and then you finally get it, and it just all makes sense, and there's no more grind. You're just in the vein. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares podcast, episode 45. The purpose of this show is to allow you free access to alcohol and drug addiction recovery success stories. Our goal is to entertain you and enrich you with life tools that will help make your sober experience easier and more serene. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is not an official Alcoholics Anonymous podcast. However, I am a believer in the program and the recovery it has brought my family. I started this show to highlight the dramatic and inspiring stories I have been hearing in recovery meetings for decades and wanted to bring those messages of hope directly to you. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. Please consider making a donation so I can continue to make quality episodes for you to enjoy. You can support us by clicking the donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. Thank you for your consideration. My email address is Mike, M-I-K-E, at SoberShares.com. 
Please reach out to me with your listener feedback, questions, or show ideas. And now it's time to meet our guest. I'm going to turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they wish. Andy Baumberger, January 9th of 93, 29 years. How old were you when you got sober? 22. Wow, that's awesome. And I'm a retread. Yeah. So this is, <clears throat> this is second go round for me. Me too. Yeah. Can you explain to the listeners that have no idea what a retread is? Can you just, can you tell them what that means? So retread is an old school phrase that we gave to people that got sober, stayed sober, went out and were able to get back Were you know what I mean? They, they got the gift again. So they were retread. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they use that anywhere else, but we use it here. Yeah, I've never heard it anywhere else. I use it in meetings all the time, especially when someone's coming back in. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Uh, because anytime anyone goes out and they come back in, there's always this shame, which is all it's it's always so interesting to me because there's always so much shame and they feel terrible. And then everyone in the room just loves the fact that they're back that they're willing to get back on the horse and kind of go with it. You know what I mean? So I've always kind of had this special place for the retreads because I am a retread. Um, I started this journey when I was 17 years old in 1988. Wow. So I, I stayed in for a little while, uh, did nothing because I was special. You yeah. Know, that was good for y'all, but you know, I need to do something different because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit different than y'all are. Yeah. So uh, I did nothing. I, I got a sponsor. Uh, I couldn't even tell you that guy's name now. And did none of the work, went through none of the book, Didn't never cracked the book. And uh, Did you own a book? Did you at least have one home? I owned a book. You got I did own a book. <laughs> I don't think I bought it. I think someone gave it to yeah, me. Yeah, they're like, here, bro. But uh, I owned a book, but I never cracked it. Yeah. And I stayed sober for about three and a half years. Wow, that's so cool. 17 to like 21 and a half or something? Almost 21. Almost 21. Almost 21. Okay. Um, so My, I, I was 20. Do you when, remember your original sobriety date? Yeah. Oh, you, yeah. May, your, May 9th of 88. Okay. Yeah. My, uh, my original, I'm a retread too. I'm a, this is my second time to, to come into Alcoholics Anonymous. My first time, I remember my original sobriety date was five, seven, 89. I was 19 years old and, uh, I, I didn't, I lasted two and a half years. So uh, very similar to yours. I, I came in as a very young man, lasted two and a half years and, uh, relapsed, went back out and then came back in and got a second sobriety date, which is my current sobriety date, which was October the 10th of 2000. So it sounds like we traveled the same path. Can you tell us about the early years of your life? Where were you born and what did your family look like? Um, so this is, this is always that weird part. I love Texas. I absolutely love Texas. I love everything about Texas. Mm -hmm. I was born in South Carolina. Okay. (laughs) That's a beautiful place, isn't it? (laughs) I know nothing about it. I have zero memories of it. Really? Uh, I was born in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, November 3rd, 1970. Okay, I was born in 1972. Awesome. As well, as well, 70 as well. So you're 52? 50, uh, yeah, 50, almost 52. November, I'll be 52. Okay, can, yeah, that's cool. So uh, I have two older brothers that are three and four years older. Uh-huh. I have one younger brother that's six and a half, almost seven years younger. Okay. So I remember nothing of South Carolina. 
So all of my memories are literally right down the street here. Uh, my parents moved back and they landed in Garland, Texas. Okay, that's about 15 minutes away from here. We're sitting in Addison, Texas. For the listeners that are familiar with the geography, we're sitting in Addison, Texas. And the town he's talking about is about 15 minutes away from here. So that, that was my literally my earliest memory was there. Uh, and oddly enough, my dad was, he worked for the House of Seagrams. So he was, he was like an outside sales rep. Uh, they had offered him a, a bigger and better position and he turned it down and came back to Texas. So he came back here, no job. And, uh, we landed in Garland, Texas, and I had, uh, two brothers and my youngest brother had yet to be born. He was about to be born. So from there, uh, Upon the arrival of my youngest brother, my mom's family is from East Texas in and around the Athens area. And she said, uh, we're not doing this in the city with four boys. So off to East Texas we went. So we moved to Athens, Texas. And that's kind of where my childhood really like took off. Like that, all of my uh, memories of childhood, everything, and it was, it was very Mayberry esque. Um, you got to remember, this is you know the seventies, so we were pretty much latchkey kids. We just kind of came and went and did our thing and rode bicycles. I rode a bicycle to work, or, or not to work, but to school. The new generation, they don't use the term latchkey kid anymore. They say that their kids are free range. It's weird. Free range kids. They just roll across the neighborhood. (laughs) I think of free range chickens. I don't think of free range kids. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I get it. Um, Super country out there. I mean. Oh my God. It's so so pretty, but it's it's very country. Yeah. Very country. Even still so. It's grown a lot, but I'm sure it's still got a country twang to it. Oh yeah. It's Uh, right next to Canton, isn't it? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is famous for their flea market. Yeah. So let, let that resonate. Yeah. And it's a big flea market. Yeah, huge. Huge. Yeah. But that's kind of the thing down there. So uh, I really took off inside of my addiction there. Um, I remember this because I've, I've told my story a few times. Uh, I, don't, I don't really care to tell my story because I, I just... You get up there and you never know what version's going to come out. You know what I mean? Because it's not like I write it down. I'm not one of those. Uh, no offense to the guys that do, but it's just not me. Um, so I kind of like this a little bit better because this isn't so you got to jam it all in and, you know, a 45-minute thing and, and you got to, you know. Yeah, so I know. That's tough sometimes. It's very tough. So <clears throat> for me, uh, I remember the first time I drank and I drank with my dad. We had come up. My grandmother still lived here. She lived in Oak Cliff. And we'd come up to check on her. And it was him and my older brother and I. And uh, my dad decided on the way back home that he was just going to stop and get a six-pack. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, do a little drinking and driving. And uh, I was in the back seat. My How old were you? Ten. Oh, God. I was 10. Our last guest started talking about drinking at 10 years old. So at 10, my dad hands me a beer. I drank the whole thing, got a nice buzz rolling, and really enjoyed it. 
You know what I mean? Really enjoyed that feeling. My mother was furious. My dad was laughing. He didn't think anything of it. Uh, the very next experience I had having two older brothers, one of my brothers acquired a bottle of Weller, uh, and we decided to play quarters. And of course, they were going to pick on me because I was the youngest at the quarters table. So I got super sloppy, super sloppy drunk. Went upstairs. We lived in a two-story house. Went upstairs, threw up, passed out. I mean, the whole nine yards. It was just, you know, here I am, 10 years old in a complete blackout stupor. Puked all over myself. Puked all over the bathroom. It was a nightmare. My mom comes in and finds me. She, she picks me up and drops me in the tub. So my head bounced off the back of the tub. Now, these are these old claw-tooth cl- uh, tubs, claw-tooth tubs. Yeah. So it was like this cast iron tub, and my head just bounced right off the back of it. So now I'm blacked out, completely hammered drunk, and I have a concussion, and I'm 10 years old. So the next morning... They're asking me, hey, where did you get it? Where did you get it? Where did you get it? And I didn't want to rattle my brother. I I just didn't want to do it. So they kind of knew, but I wasn't going to give him up. So go to school, go on, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Every single time I drank as a minor like that, it was the exact same thing. I would drink. I could not say no. And it wasn't like I didn't want to say no. It's just I couldn't say no. So every time I drank, I blacked out every single time. Wow. And I never, you know, I mean, when, when you're, you know, young, you don't, you don't realize that, oh, this is a problem. It's just, you're a problem. So uh, somewhere around 13, 14, no telling how many times I had drank, blacked out, drank, blacked out. Uh, someone said, hey, you should try this. And I smoked pot for the first time. It really didn't do anything for me. I was like, all right, whatever. So it didn't really do anything for me. But the next time, it did a lot for me. And I've talked to a lot of people that have had that same experience. I've heard that a lot, too. The very next time, loved it. <laughs> and I didn't black out. I didn't throw up on myself. Do you know what I mean? It, it, there was not this mess to clean up after so I really liked that. So I went more that route, and it was much easier to kind of come by. So I spent, you know, a lot of time smoking pot and just, you know, cultivating being a pothead. And I really liked everything around it. You know what I mean? So this is like 80, 81, 82, 83, 84. Yeah. So pot was easily accessible wasn't as good as what they have now now the stuff is mind-bending I, I can't even wrap my head around it but then uh you know it was kind of hit or miss it was good and bad you know mm-hmm. a lot uh, of that was coming up from mexico back then absolutely so i really kind of gravitated towards being more of a pothead than drinking just because i couldn't i could never handle my drinking do you know what i mean yeah so uh I kind of gravitated more towards that. So I started selling pot and was really good at it for one reason or another. And uh, lo and behold, a friend of mine said, hey, instead of selling that, you should sell this. 
and it was meth. And I, had, I didn't know what meth was. I was like, well, that's kind of scary. I don't, I don't really want to mess with that. I'm happy just being a pothead. And one thing led to another, and I started selling meth and doing meth, and that's when I really spiraled out of control. What does that stuff look like when you're selling it? Is it like brown and crunchy? looks like brown cocaine, or what does it look like? It looks a lot like cocaine. It's just this white, powdery uh-huh. um, stuff. Stuff. Yeah. I mean... And then they can either snort it or they can put it in a spoon and light it and turn it into liquid and then shoot in their veins? Uh, I mean, not so much with meth. That's more, that's, that's more of a heroin thing. Yeah. Getting rid of the impurities. Um, meth, it, it's definitely put in a spoon, definitely broken down, definitely put in a syringe. You can snort it. You can smoke it. Yeah. Um, I snorted it for a long time. And then lo and behold, I had a dear friend who was very good friends with my brothers. Uh, he was like, Hey man, you should really try it like this. Mm-hmm. And I was 13 years old and put a needle in my arm and I found God. It was amazing. Uh, the world looked better. The world smelled better. Uh, I felt better. Um, it was just awesome. I mean, the top of my head blew off and I was off to the races and I absolutely loved it. I want to ask you a question. I don't have any experience with what you're talking about, but I'm super interested. I've seen a lot of TV shows. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, did you do what I think they call tying off where you get, you tie something around, I guess, maybe above the injection site Mm -hmm. with a rubber stuff? Did you do that? Absolutely. What did you, is it called tying off? Yeah. What is that? What did you use to, to like a belt? I think on mm-hmm. TV shows, I've seen them use a belt. Yep. And then is that what you used most Absolutely. of the time? Absolutely. And you had syringes. Yep. Where did you get syringes? I guess you just got them at Walmart or CVS. My buddies always had them. Really? And were you smart or did you try to be smart and always use a clean one? Or did you share syringes with people at that I time? Know, we totally shared syringes. You did. <clears throat> oh yeah. We totally shared syringes. But you knew that was when the AIDS epidemic was hitting. Were you aware of that? And were you scared that you might get AIDS if you were sharing needles with these people? Because we were so far removed from a big city. Yeah. Most of that stuff, we got like super secondhand knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Um, We were more worried about like hepatitis. Did did you know anybody that got that? Hepatitis? Oh, yeah. And what is that? Hepatitis, uh, I'm not sure. I think it's hepatitis B. Yeah. That you could get from sharing needles. Um, it's a blood infection or something. It is a blood infection, I believe. I'm not. Yeah, I'm I don't not, know. I don't know, <laughs> doctor. doctor. Did you ever know anybody that got an injection, uh, an infection at the injection site? Oh yeah, yeah. Is that why they always do it in different places? Uh, you do it in, for us. We did it in different places because we didn't want the bruising. Yeah, do you know what I mean. Yeah. We didn't want it to be so track marks, there, right, out there in the open. I'm not trying to trigger anybody that's listening, but I am curious because all I've ever seen is television stuff about this. So right. I've got somebody here that knows what they're talking about. So I'm asking some questions. Another thing I've seen on TV, I want to ask you this: Did you ever do this, or did you ever see anybody do this on TV? A lot of times, I see that they use their arms up or whatever, and so I've seen people on TV shoot it between their toes. Did you have you ever heard of that? Is that a thing? Did you did you ever to shoot it between your toes that is definitely a thing i never did that uh-huh i, I just never had any need to uh-huh. um but i know a lot of people that did uh-huh. uh which was weird but yeah these were also older people they had jobs that they were thinking about i had no job my job was being you know a student which i was terrible at uh so i didn't really care yeah. you know i mean i just didn't really think about it and it's not like i got to do it numerous times a day all day day in day out this was at the infancy of my addiction, 
it's so uh it spun out really really quick really quick so literally i'm 13 years old put a needle in my arm selling a lot of pot now i'm selling meth kind of i was really doing more than i was selling which is always seems to be the case and uh there was a girl i don't remember this girl's name but she came in from she was from corpus christi she came in she was hanging out with some friends of ours and she was getting ready to go back this girl was super hot and she was like hey i'm going back to corpus do you want to go and i was like yep so i literally just went to my house got a trash bag threw some clothes in it and ran away with this girl to corpus christi and uh i thought it was like three or four days that I was gone and uh, in talking to my parents who we have an open dialogue. This is, this is not anything that's like hush hush in my family. Uh, I was like, I thought it was like three or four days. And they're like, no, you were gone for like three or four weeks. I was like, Oh wow. So uh, was a complete runaway at 13 and called my parents to just let them know I was still breathing in and out, you know? She chick that I was with was like, hey, you should probably call your parents let them know you're all right. And I was like, ah, not really. Wasn't really, I wasn't a huge concern of mine. I was like, yeah. But I did. And my mom, being wicked smart, she was like, hey, you should just give me your address so I can write you letters, you know, so we could stay in touch. Because, you know, back then, you know, that was a long distance phone call. So that, that phone call was probably, you know, 25 bucks. So... She said, just give me, you know, just give me the address, blah, blah, blah. So I gave her the address, you know, wasn't really within my right mind. And the police was, department showed up, <laughs> scooped police, your ass the up. The police department was there like within the hour. <laughs> Were so, you surprised when they come rolling up? I was totally shocked. I mean, I was literally <laughs> sitting, uh, I was sitting on the couch. Uh, I had just rolled a joint and literally had a lit oh, joint. And they come knocking on the door and you're not expecting the police to just show up when they show up. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they showed up and off to a juvenile detention I went. Oh my. And I was there uh, for probably four or five days because the only flight that I could get out was a first class ticket. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, there's no way in hell we're putting him in first class to bring him home from being a runaway. So he's safe where he is. That's fine. So they uh, got me on a plane to Houston and my mom and my older brother showed up Uh my older brother was there because my mom was like, if he runs, I can't catch him. And she was very fearful that I was going to run. Uh, so I got in the car and I had no, I, I didn't even think about running. You know what I mean, it was just like, oh, I guess I'm going home. So went home, uh, caught the uh, brunt of all of that. Ended up, uh, I was on probation. Uh, at this point, I was, I was on a lot of probation because I just kept getting in trouble, getting in trouble, getting in trouble. I will say the thing that caught me, that really kept me out of a lot of trouble, growing up in this small town, it's your typical Texas small town. So there's, you know, you got the courthouse in the middle and there's a square, very typical in Texas. I was a paper boy around that square when I was super young eight, nine years old. My probation officer was one of the people that I delivered papers to. So he watched me grow up. 
So I got in all this trouble and I got really less, you know, of the ramifications that I probably should have gotten because I was his paper boy for so many years. And he watched, you know, me grow up as this toe-headed kid with, you know, newspaper ink all over my face and hands, just complete mess. And uh, he was my probation officer. So our family attorney uh, at the time, who we went to church with, uh, who I am completely indebted to because he helped me on that path of not dying and, you know, uh, he got involved and he knew my probation officer, of course, because you're talking a small town, 10,000 people. And they came together with this plan to send me to this boy's home. So I got shipped off to a boy's home. Uh, I was 14. I just turned 15 when I went. So 1986, I get shipped off to a boy's home in January. So at this point, I had already missed so much school that there was no possibility of continuing my freshman year. So I get shipped off to this boy's home uh, in Amarillo, Texas. So I lived in the panhandle uh, for two years uh, in Amarillo. Um, Cal Farley's Boys Ranch used to be an old orphanage and they started taking in troubled teens and whatnot and I was at that time one of the oldest people they took now our family attorney flew out there with me we go through the interview process I literally lied the whole time because I did not want to go to this boys ranch didn't want to get locked up didn't want to go I lied I mean Two plus two was five. If it was red, it was blue. I mean, I just lied. Just straight, just straight up lied the whole time. And they're, oh, we've never had numbers like this. I mean, this guy's definitely coming here. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, no. So sure enough, I got shipped off to a boy's home, and I was there for two years. What was that like? Uh, it was not fun. It was not fun at first. Uh, you know, I, I have long hair now. I had long hair then. I go into this boy's home, and immediately I went right to their barber shop. They cut all my hair off. Um, we had dorms that we lived in. There were 300 of us out there. Wow. It's uh, a big number. It's, I mean, it's, that was a, it was a lot of kids uh, between staff members and kids that were out there. So it was... It was really cool, but it was so scary. Because here you are, you know, the, the only thing I knew about going away like that was stuff that I'd seen on TV. So I was super freaked out. So they sent us out. They sent me out there. I don't know anyone out there. No one. So they put me in this dorm. There were all these other kids there, random age. I mean, we're talking young kids that were like eight years old, all the way up to uh, seniors that were getting ready to graduate, you know, the program and leave. So here I am, I'm 15 years old. Our dorm parent was ex-Navy. So he was, you know, military vet. And he was not someone that really you wanted to screw around with. He was very rigid. And he helped me. Now, he was not my favorite person at the time. And he and I butted heads a lot. He always won, of course. But he gave me a structure and discipline that I had just never had. So I'll always, and still to this day, my recovery 
kind of started there. Um, still to this day, I, I owe that guy a huge debt of gratitude because without that, without that discipline and super rigid lifestyle, I don't know that I would have made it. And I don't think that I would be near successful as I am now because it carries. Do you know what I mean? When you're so impressionable and you've been messed up for so long and then you're kind of thrown into this really rigid, very uh, structured lifestyle, it was different. It was very different. And it gave me kind of the margins in which to kind of live by. So it was the first time I'd ever really experienced that. And I just flourished, got caught up in school, was, you know, making A's and B's. Uh, we had jobs that we had to do while we were there. So uh, in the beginning, it was terrible. I mean, it was, it was absolutely horrible. Like, I mean, well, I got to make my bed every day, dude. <laughs> dude, it was get up every morning, make your bed, uh, clean the dorm. So you had to clean the dorm every day. Then you went to the cafeteria and you ate with your dorm uh, and then you went either to work or to school depending on what day it was because we had like full term you know school which I had a lot of because I was getting caught up uh, so it was it was definitely it was different you know what I mean all my buddies are at home getting cars going to prom <laughs> having girlfriends beating rock bands and I'm in Amarillo Texas you know were you able to get drugs or alcohol out there? That's still during your Oh, 100%. 100%. percent yeah. the boys home, you were able oh, to yeah. figure out a way to 100%. do it. 100%. Which was... Uh, or were you just down to weed and beer at that point? You weren't like busting out crazy stuff there, were you? Uh, we really couldn't. Um, it was difficult. But after a while, once you've been there for a while, and they, and they kind of get you integrated into the system... Once a month, they would take you into Amarillo, and you could kind of screw off in Amarillo. Mm -hmm. uh, so, of course, being a drug addict and an alcoholic, I mean, I immediately found other drug addicts and alcoholics, and immediately, hey, man, would you be willing to bring this out here and leave it here? <laughs> I mean, because they, they searched us when we came back. I mean, it's just the way it was. I mean, you're in a boy's home. So if you're going to go into town and you come back, you're definitely getting searched. So where, how would you get it back into the boys' home? Like leave it on the outskirts of the perimeter of the property or what would you do? Yeah. Really? 100%. Leave it out in the desert yeah, somewhere one, behind one, a cactus? 100%. <laughs> so It's behind the big cactus. So here I am in this boys' home because I'm, I'm just an unruly drug addict that my parents can't handle anymore. How sad and lonely were you? Because did you feel abandoned by your family? No. Really? No. Really? <laughs> that never even crossed my mind. Really? You know what I mean? Never just even rolling. crossed my mind. It was just like, okay, well, this is where we are. This is what we're doing. So I know people that were in that situation had a different reaction than you did. And they have fallen apart as adults because they have issues going back to that formative years when their parents shipped them off to boarding school or the boys' home or something. They're like, my mom and dad didn't even want me. My mom and dad couldn't handle me. Yeah, I was probably a hard kid to handle, but they didn't even try. They just bailed on me and sent me up to Kalamazoo, Michigan, to a boys' home or military school. Like, people are always threatening their kids, not people. Some people threaten their kids with military school and then actually follow through with it. And I've heard that they just feel sad about that, that their parents bailed on them like that. 
you didn't really have a choice. I didn't really have a choice, and I, dude, it just never affected me like that. Really, it just never did. You're resilient. I mean, I went out there and I was just like, well, I guess it's time to make new friends. So I made new friends. And of course, you know, when you're in that, when you're in that frame of mind and you're living that type of lifestyle, you're going to find your people. And I found my people. Now, here was the interesting part. There were kids there from all over the country. So I immediately gravitated towards, I had a friend that lived in Arlington, which is right around the corner from here. Then I had a friend that was from California. Mm-hmm. And then we had, we had all these people. And there were a lot of Texans, a lot of Californians. Lot, I mean, there were just all these kids. So it was like, you've got to be kidding me. They just took all the worst kids in the country, put us all in one spot, and now we're friends? This was amazing. So I had a lot of fun there. Um, and it was just kind of one of those deals where you're either just going to have fun or you're going to be miserable the whole time. So I've just always tried to have as much fun as I possibly could wherever I was, whatever the situation. So I made a lot of friends. And we had made a lot of friends with people in Amarillo. They were bringing drugs out there. We were selling it for an exuberant price because, <laughs> hello, you're in a boy's home, so it's not like you can just go to the vending machine and get this. You're like, how much is that joint? You're like, yeah, it's a $20 joint, exactly. son. <laughs> exactly. Like, what? You're like, that's a tw- I didn't stutter. You heard me. That's a $20 joint, son. Yep. So, <laughs> He's like, here you go. <laughs> yep. And they were happy to hand that right over. Uh, so, of course, we get caught. Because someone got busted, and they rolled on someone, and they rolled on someone. So now I'm in a boy's home. And the whole thought was, well, we're going to sell drugs in a boy's home? And it's like, dude, we're in jail. What are they going to do to us? <laughs> so, mm. so we started selling this stuff, and I didn't even care if we got caught. I was like, dude, I'm already in a boy's home. I don't, I don't care. It's like, let's do this. So we did it, made some money. Um, we all get caught. And I was the only one that, like, they had me dead to rights. They were like, all you have to do is own it and you'll be good. You know, your, your punishment will be less. And I wouldn't own it. I would not roll on my friends. So everyone there, because there's, I mean, there's only 300 of us out there. They knew from that day on, hey, man, you can trust that guy. Because he was caught dead to rights and he wouldn't give up his friends. Even though his friends had already given up him, he wouldn't do it. And I paid the price for it. I was literally, uh, they called it, you know, you're on restriction. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like being grounded, but way worse. Mm-hmm. So I was on restriction for a really long time because I wouldn't give up my friends that had already given me up, mm-hmm. but I was just, I just wasn't going to happen. So there's just that stubbornness, just that I'm not going to do it. Uh, so I was there for two years. I went in at 15, came out at 17 Unbeknownst to me, my, my two older brothers were lobbying at home for me to come home this whole time. I mean, I had no clue. And for the situation I was in, you're talking 86, 87, 88, their rehabs were not, they weren't really widely spoken about. You know what I mean? It wasn't on the forefront yet. You know what I mean? So I'd had a couple buddies that had gone to rehab that my parents knew about. We didn't know at this point that this is what I was. We had no clue. They just thought that I was just this unruly kid that just wouldn't get with the program. And to the naked eye, that's probably really, really true. He just, he just needs to get with it. Can he just get in line with the rest of the kid? Can he just do what's right? I just couldn't do what was right. I just didn't want to. There wasn't any fun in it. 
So I come home uh, that January. I'd been there two years. My parents pulled me out. I was 17 years old, midterm junior. Uh, my parents were living at Cedar Creek, and my dad had bought a business there and a liquor store, of all things. So I have three brothers. My dad decides to buy a liquor store. It's a wicked smart there. So they they bring me home. I'm right back in with a bunch of high school friends that I had left, you know, previous. And I was good for about a month, about four weeks, because I came home with a healthy bank account. I had been eating properly, working out every day. Uh, life was good, you know. And four weeks into it, I was so strung out that I could no longer go to school, didn't care about school, um, quit going to school completely, and might be at home, might not be at home. My parents never really could put a finger on me. And we had a family uh, family that we had gone to church with whose son had ended up going to rehab. And my parents decided, hey, man, we, we got to send him to rehab. He's not going to make it. So... My older brother said, whoa, 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 before we go down that route, send him to Dallas and let him be, I'll take, I'll straighten him out. (laughs) I was like, okay. So 24 hours in, he was calling my mom saying, hey man, I'm in over my head here. We got to do something. So they got in touch with this rehab and this rehab, it's a super controversial rehab and you, tons of stuff online about it. There's still a lot of people that are super pissed about this rehab. Uh, I didn't have that experience with that rehab, but it was called Straight Incorporated. And it was in Richardson, Texas. And I went in, uh, I was 17 years old when I went into rehab. Um, It was very controversial. It was a lot of brainwashing. Um, For me... Like aversion therapy or what, 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 what was so controversial about it? Um, I mean, there's tons of literature online yeah. about it, <laughs> tons. I mean, there, there's been documentaries put out about it. There yeah. were after-school movies, uh, uh, that after-school movie, Scared Straight, that was based on the rehab that I went through. Okay. Um, it was peer-on-peer. So they, they separated, you know, there was a girl's side, there was a guy's side, and as you, there were five phases. And as you went up the phase, you know, for your first phase, you're brand new. You're going to learn this thing. Second phase, they give you a little bit of responsibility back. Third phase, they give you a little more responsibility back. Fourth phase, you get a lot more responsibility back. Fifth phase, you're getting ready to check out. So, Was it an inpatient or outpatient deal? 100% inpatient. So you were living there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I was there... Eight and a half months. Mm -hmm. And I didn't finish it. Okay. So, I mean, there were people that were there for a year, year and a half. Some people were there for two years. I mean, it was, it was, it was a long-term treatment. Uh Uh-huh. I guess it was probably about 30,000 a month and they were charging your parents insurance. Okay. So that's the weird thing. This was, there were three major rehabs at that time. There was Centercorp which Centercorp was in Fort Worth, Texas, and you have to have a court order. Judge has to send you to Centercorp. And Centercorp's hardcore. That's like way hardcore. 
Rehabilitat, which was in Hawaii. And That's where parents, I would have gone, bro. Right, right. <laughs> and my parents were like, we're not sending him to Come Hawaii. On, man. I'm sick, mom. So then there was straight. Straight was the cheapest. Uh-huh. It was readily available. And my parents just rolled in there. Uh, and it was, I think the whole thing cost them $11,000. For eight months? For eight and a half months. They must have been getting money from other places too. And and there's a lot of there's a lot of weird stuff that went on behind the scenes. Yeah, behind with, the scenes, they had to be getting funding from somewhere to to supplement that eleven thousand. And and there's a lot of conspiracy theories that think that. Uh, long story short, it it was one hundred percent brainwashing. One hundred percent. Yeah. My thing was my brain needed to be washed. Okay, it makes sense. Uh, for me, it was normal and natural to have a needle in my arm. Uh, that's just not the normal, natural way to get through life. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially as a teenager. As a teenager. Any age, but geez. Right. So having just come out of a boy's home that I'd been in for two years, now they're throwing me into intense rehab. Um, were you? A, let me ask you a question. Were you 100% aware at this point that you were in need of help and that you were a drug addict and alcoholic, or were you still in some level of denial? There wasn't denial. I just had no idea. But did you know that you were alcoholic drug addict or what did you think? No. Really? You just were rolling and I'm here now and I'm here now and I'm here now. I just, I was just having fun. Yeah. I was just having a good time. Still young. I was like, Hey man, y'all need to just back up and let me do my thing. Yeah. And, uh, thank God my parents saw it differently. (laughs) As would the police department. (laughs) Most society, most of society. Yeah. I mean, lo and behold. So, you know, for me, uh, didn't want to be there, fought it the whole time. Finally just got on board with it. I was like, you know what? I'm drinking the Kool-Aid so I can get out of here. Is that what it was? Was your plan so, to drink or use when you got out? or I really, I didn't have a plan when I got out. I just wanted out. You just rolling, okay. Yeah, it's like, you know, we'll, we'll figure this out when I get out. I just need to get out of here. Yeah. So my plan was I was going to go in there and lie 100%. You know what I mean? Now you're in. You're not going anywhere. Um, I roll in, sat in group. And of course they asked the question, they're like, Hey, does anybody know this kid? And I'm kind of looking around and then hands start going up. And I was like, Oh great. Well, there went, there went my lie. Can't lie now because people know me. Mm-hmm. So it was two guys that uh, I had grown up with. One I went through school with and one, he and I went to church together, which is how I ended up in this rehab. His parents talked to my parents, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I ended up in this intense rehab and was there for eight and a half months. And I had turned 18, still stayed after I turned 18. I, I'd stayed a couple months. And then I just kind of was like, you know what? I'm just, I'm done here. I'm ready to do something different. It's like, I, I don't, I don't really care about this anymore because they were really trying to push me to go on staff there and, we think that you have, you know, a lot to offer other kids and blah, blah, blah. And that was kind of cool for a minute. And then I was like, you know, I really just want to get back to my life. I, I, whatever that looks like, you know, wherever that takes me. I'm just tired of doing this. So I split. I was 18. They couldn't do anything to me. So I left. Um, I went back in. Two weeks later, they wanted me to come back and do uh like an exit interview. Mm-hmm. And I went back and uh, I was a little freaked out about being in that building because hello, I mean, they kept me there for a long time. It's kind of a hostage. 
And I was like, well, I'm 18, so there's not a lot they can do to me. So, and I, I'll get out at some, you know, at some yeah, point. You were thinking yeah. all that as you were walking on the property? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm like, okay, this, this could go one of two ways here. So I went in and the counselor that I talked to, I still remember her and I've bumped into her since. She just laid it all out there. I mean, she really just did. She wasn't trying to sell it. She wasn't trying to hold back. She was just, you're not going to make it. You're absolutely not going to make it and you're going to die. And I, I left that conversation a little freaked out, but really pissed off. I was like, I'm nine months sober at this point. It's like, I got this figured out. It's like, dude, I'm, I'm nine months clean. We're good. I can stay sober. I can do this. She's like, you're not going to make it. I'm just going to tell you right now, you're not going to make it. Were you going to any kind of recovery meetings or were they talking about NA or AA or anything like that? Oh, we were totally going to AA. We okay. were going to, uh, at, at that time, we were going to Dallas North. Okay. What about the two weeks that you were free after you emancipated yourself at 18 and before you went back for your exit interview? Did you go to any meetings during those two weeks? 100%. By yourself? Yeah. Okay. So she told you you're not going to make it and then what happened? So because it was peer on peer and we had paraprofessionals there, which are kids that kind of go through the program and then go on staff there and then they lead, you know, group and they kind of take you through the process. They had said, you know, if you leave, you are 100%. No one will ever come to your aid. You know, you, you'll have the scarlet letter, uh, all that stuff. Well, that turned out not to be true because two of the top counselors there we're like, hey, man, we, we need a roommate. You, you need a place to stay. And it was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. So we were going to meetings, and we were doing sober things. We just weren't doing any of the rest of it. So we just kind of stayed in our little clique, and we stayed sober together. But none of us were going through the work. None of us had sponsors. We just kind of sponsored each other. And we were so busy trying to figure out and navigate this new life. Now it's like, okay, now I'm out of rehab. I got to find a job. I got to get sorted out. You know, I, I need to get all this figured out. And I got bills to pay. Uh, so when you get busy doing that stuff, it kind of keeps your mind from wandering off into, is this what I really am? So we were, we were busy trying to pay bills and trying to keep our head above water and do the sober thing and, so we had a bunch of friends that had all come out of this rehab and we all kind of lived kind of close, same apartment complexes and whatnot. And uh, we just ran around in this huge group and they were very, you have, to remember, you have to remember, I came out of East Texas, had really long hair and I just moved in with two guys that were very new wave. So one of my roommates looked just like Billy Idol, spiked white hair, the whole nine yards, dressed very similar, very sloppy. Uh, my other roommate had uh, Robert Smith hair at the time. If you remember Robert Smith's hair, it was really big. Yeah, lead big. singer of The Cure? Yes. Yeah. How would you describe your look? Uh, very 80s rock and roll. Okay. Yeah, kind of a mullet going. Uh, 
you look like a rock and roll star <laughs> to me. I mean, you've got to look. And, you know, I know that this is an audio program and the people can't see you. Well, tell, maybe tell them how tall you are and how much you weigh so they can try to get a picture of what you look like. How tall are you? 5'10". Uh, and how much do you weigh? 155. And how long would you say your blonde hair is? Uh, middle of my back. Middle of your back, long blonde hair. You look like you're in a rock and roll <laughs> band. Tight black t-shirt. He looks like a rock star all the time, man. Or somebody jumped off the pages of GQ magazine. So you definitely have a look to you. So I want the, the, the people to be able to picture you. So you're 17, eight, no, you're 18 when this is all happening. So when, wait, how old were you when you get sober? Let's run up to, to I mean, well, is that, was that your sobriety day? Does that stick from May the- 9th of 88. So it sticks to, from before you went into that rehab or right when mm -hmm. you got to that rehab, you stuck through it the whole time? Yep. So how did you make the transition from running around with all your friends from the rehab living in the apartment complexes close by to getting dug into a 12-step program just slowly by little? No. No. Uh- <laughs> so I had I was working in restaurants bars waiting tables this that and the other right here mostly in Addison Carrollton so on and so forth we were all still living together but we had you know life kind of gets busy and people start getting jobs and start moving and people were in relationships so there wasn't this tight unit that was running around together so I was working in the restaurant and bars had different roommates a friend of mine, I'll never forget this, and I still remember his name, can see his face while he's saying it. I was 20 years old, 19, 20 years old, and he said, do you think this is what we really are? Do you really think this is what we are? Do you think we're addicts and alcoholics? Do you think maybe we just didn't have enough responsibility? Maybe it was the people we were running around with? Do you think that that could be I mean do you think I mean are we really is this what we are now he stayed sober like he got busy in the program and he figured out oh I've got to do other things so his sobriety date never changed that conversation was like a hot nail in my ear and it just it just spin it I mean it, I just went spinning after that I mean totally spinning and within three weeks, I was super freaked out, didn't go to meetings, didn't call a sponsor, didn't, I mean, did none of that because I'd already cut all that out because I was keeping me sober. Y'all weren't doing this. It was me that was doing this. So I started thinking along those lines after we had that conversation. And within three weeks, I remember that relapse like it was yesterday. Um, smoked a joint, went straight to uh, this pool hall that used to be on Lower Greenville called the Royal Rack. It was a reggae pool hall. Immediately started, started ordering pitchers of beer. Uh, went to a friend of mine's apartment afterwards, hitting his bong, and he literally looked at me and he said, dude, most people get off the wagon and tiptoe around. It seems like you're in full sprint. And I didn't even care. At that point, I was like, whatever. I woke up the next morning, and it was, it was a very familiar feeling. And they talk about it uh, in our textbook, about you know, the terror, bewilderment, despair. That was an every morning occurrence for me. Uh, and it just took off from there. So from there... 
because I was trying to navigate um, what I used to be, what I just went through, and now what I am. How do you kind of put that foot forward? You know, where, where do you go with this? So being in the restaurant business, immediately had friends that were just completely wasted all the time because that's what restaurant people do. It's the reason they work in restaurants, or at least back in the 80s and 90s, that's what was going on. So I had immediate friends that I could party with, didn't really care. And even they were starting to say, dude, I mean, this, this guy takes it a little too far. I mean, you know, we were working all the time. Uh, and we were drinking, doing drugs, the whole nine yards, um, to supplement my income because you need that when you're drinking and doing that many drugs to supplement my income. Um, I decided to sell some cocaine. Seemed like a good idea. And I sold to an undercover cop, not once, but twice and then got busted. And when I went in, it was a huge story, very long, very detailed. Um, They were not really interested in me. They were interested in my dealer. And things kind of went this way. (laughs) Things kind of went that way. And they said, we really want you to rat out all your friends. And I just wasn't comfortable doing it. It was just like, dude, I'm I'm not going to do it. It's not going to happen. So... Long story short, people figured out that I had gotten busted. People started to know because everyone in the restaurant business kind of knows who everyone is in the restaurant business. And I had to make a beeline out of here. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm going back to East Texas. So in Dallas, I was super scared of getting busted and getting taken to jail. So I just split, went to East Texas. And I was living with my parents. Uh, Got a job. Immediately say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm only going to be here in you know, two or three months, whatever, but I'm going to get a job. And, you know, so got a job. Parents had this amazing lake house right on Cedar Creek Lake. So it was kind of it was really nice. You know what I mean? Going from my one bedroom apartment in Dallas that sucked to now I'm back at my parents house where it's killer on the water. You know, got a boat hanging in the boathouse. Um, I was coming home from work. And it was, I was on my motorcycle. It was cold. It was raining. So I was moving kind of quick and a little too quick. Ran across paths with a uh, police officer. So the police officer pulls me over and I'd gone to high school with this guy. And he was like, hey man, I would normally just let you go. But my boss is behind me in the next car. So we got to do this by the book. And I was like, that's cool. So I'm sitting in the front of the police car. We're sitting there getting caught up. Hey, man, how are you? You know, how's your mom, dad, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, man, everything's good. You know, right on. He runs all my information and it comes back. Uh, there's this thing that's called NCIC. Is that right? Anyway, it's the national database. So no matter where you're at in the country, if you've got warrants, it pops up. And I popped on two. And he was like, dude, you have two felony warrants out of Dallas. So I can't just write you a ticket. So I get arrested and they take me to Athens because Athens is where they would take you before they ship you off to Dallas. So sitting in uh, the holding tank, because they're not just going to put you in with the people that are staying in Athens. They're literally 
you're in a holding tank getting ready to get shipped off to Dallas. So I'm sitting in that tank. I'll never forget this moment. When I was in treatment and straight, part of their deal was we're going to take these kids back to the high school where they went to high school and they partied and have them like give this talk to the whole student body about alcohol and drugs. Fast forward. Now I'm 20 years old. I'm sitting in a holding tank and this kid keeps looking at me and he's like, Hey man, you look really familiar. And I was like, Maybe. I mean, I grew up around here, so who knows, man. He's like, no. It, I, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. Sure enough, he's like, dude, you came to my high school and talked to me about drugs and whatnot. And I was like, yeah, I did. And he was like, what are you in here for? Drugs. <laughs> just this terribly humiliating moment. Terribly humiliating. They sent me to Dallas. I'm in jail for 63 days. 63 days. And Lou Starrett? Lou Starrett. So I get in. I'll never forget this. I was talking to this guy on the way up. And I was like, hey, man, what do we do now? And this cat looked at me and he said, now we make friends. And I went into one tank and he went into another. I was the only white guy in there. Only one. And I sat but three or four days, didn't really say anything to anyone. And then they finally started to figure out, I mean, this kid's going to be here for a while. So there was this guy in there. Uh, he's like, hey, man, what's going on? And we started making friends, you know. So when you're in jail, you, you really want to be kind of cautious who you're talking to and what, what's going on. But we were all in the same. They, it's not like they put murderers and drug addicts together. You know what I mean? People that are selling drugs and stuff like that. They kind of keep you segregated. So I'm in there with a bunch of other dudes that were in there on drug charges. So uh, I had put in, because I had been at this boy's home and I'd worked in their kitchen, I put in to, hey, man, I, I want to be a trustee. I want to work in the kitchen. I've got all this you know, stuff. So I sat in there for about two weeks. And in that two-week time, I got my moment of clarity. And it was huge. It was really, really big. It was a big deal. Tell me about that. So you have like, to, to paint the picture of the, what the tanks look like, I don't know if you've ever been to Loose Starrett, been there intimately. So when you go in, there's like an open room, and there's three or four fixed tables that are like bolted to the ground. They're not moving. The chairs don't move. They don't swivel. You just, they're just kind of fixed. Then they have tanks along the sides, these rooms along the sides where the doors close. Well, you ain't just rolling in there and getting one of those rooms. You're going to be sleeping on the floor for a while, which I did. Eventually, it becomes your turn to be in one of these rooms where the door closes at night. So I was finally in one of those rooms, and I'm laying there. It's got a concrete bed, and it's got a, a toilet and a sink. I'm laying there. It's about two weeks in. And I literally saw my whole life in reverse like a movie. And I'll never, ever forget it. And it dawned on me right then and there. I'd had enough 
being in a boy's home, enough being in a rehab, just enough AA to know what was going on. This is a moment of clarity. And at that point, I was like, that's it, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. This is not going to be my life. Because I was on the trajectory where, dude, better get used to doing this because this is what your life's going to look like. I mean, you've already done this a portion of your life. What should have been the funnest time of your life when you're 15, 16, 17, 18. And that's, that's when guys are out there making memories. I was out there trying to dodge the bullet. So it's like, uh, this, is, this is not fun. And here I am yet again. It's like, that's it, I'm done. And I made it super clear to myself right there. If I get out of here, if I dodge this, if I get a second chance, I'm making the most of it. I'm not doing this again. Now, is that to say that I haven't been back to jail since? No. <laughs> no, I've been to jail many, many times in recovery. But not like that. Not like that. Not with super heavy stuff hanging over you. So, I went did, down and... Did you say, God help me at any point during that? Or did you just say to yourself, I'm not going to do it anymore? I oh, mean, no. I, I just said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this You anymore. said you had just enough to, 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 you know, that was one of the ingredients in the soup for the moment of clarity. Did you say to yourself at all, I'm going to dig back into those meetings and, and try to go see those people? 100%. Did they have meetings in jail? Um, you know, I heard they did. I never saw it. I never saw it. And let me tell you, when you're in jail, people get really deep into the Bible. Like really, like really deep. So what's the deal with Bibles in jails? They're just available. Everybody can have one all the time, anytime. I mean, do you just ask for one? Or are they just laying around? I mean, if you ask for one, they'll give you one. That's okay. for sure. Did you see a Quran laying around or any kind of other religious texts, Buddhist stuff? Jewish no, I, would say, I mean, when you're in jail, you're, you're not really trying to pay attention to what, what else is going on over mm -hmm. there. You're just trying to keep it to yourself. I've heard people use Bibles in jails for pillows. They do. Yeah, because they, they, they get in, checked in, and they're like, we don't have no pillows. Right. And so you get a Bible, and you yeah. lay your head on that and sleep. Yep. Did you read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? Did you read it in, in jail and stuff? Oh, yeah, 100%. You were just super, super bored, and you just like, I'm going to... No, I was super freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> I was super freaked out. Because I was looking at... My charges went anywhere from 5 to 99 years uh -huh. each. Mm. So... I was like, man, I don't, I don't really know how this is going to go down. I don't know this judge. I don't have an attorney. Um, my dad had said, hey, if, if you want me to bail you out, I will, which was huge because my dad ain't that cat. And I said, no, I have more time than money. And I don't know what made me say that because I hadn't yet had my moment of clarity when all that came down. Like, I knew if I get out, I know what I'm going to do. I just know it. And it's not going to be good for anybody. So I was like, no, I'm good where I am. I need to be here. So I sat there, got that moment of clarity, and dug in. And I knew the minute I get out, I'm going straight back to AA. It's the only chance I got. And I knew that for a fact. So after you got out, were you there 63 days and then you got out and you bounced what, right back into Clean Air North or to Dallas North or what'd you do? No, I, uh, I had worked it out with the judge. Uh, my attorney was terrible. 
absolutely terrible. You should just take this deal. No, I'm going to court, man. I'm going to court. I'm going to go in front of the judge. The judge came down, and dude, it's always so freaky when the judge is like handing you your sentence. It's it's very stressful. Um, because I had been in so many situations like that, I knew exactly what to do. Oh my God. Give me some tips. What do you do? Dude, you be very respectful. You make 100% eye contact. You stand with your hands behind your back, like you're at attention and you hang on his every word. Okay. Yeah. That's what you do. I bet a lot of people don't do that. No. (laughs) They stare at the ground or they look at the wall. (laughs) So, uh, the judge came out and he said, I'm, Sentencing you to five years, probated. And he kind of waited on that probated, you know what I mean? So I'm sitting here going, oh my God, I'm going away for five years. So he said probated and literally it was just like, oh my God, thank God. Wow, he did that on purpose. He probably does that to everybody. Probably. I mean, he's got this, you know, this <laughs> kid standing here. So, but it made an impact, made a huge impact. And, Super uh, scary. Dude, very, very. So I literally got out that day, went right back to East Texas, dropped all my stuff at my parents' house, and immediately went to AA. Immediately. So many people don't, though. That's on them. I know. That's not your story. It's on them. (laughs) That's what they tell you to do at rehab. A lot of times when you get out of rehab, they're like, dude, you're not going to make it if you don't go these 12 step meetings. You should go home, put your stuff down, pet your dog, kiss your wife, and walk out the door and go find a meeting and go. And then they don't. And then one day turns into two days, and then two days turns into three days, and then they're not going. And then they're like freaked out. And then they realize, so I'm proud of you. I'm glad that you did that. You went home and and, and found a meeting. What was the name of the meeting that you were going to out there in East Texas? You want to give them a shout out? Do you remember the name of the are you kidding me? Yeah. What's it called? Lake Area AA. Oh, that sounds pretty classy. I mean, it, one would think. I mean, it had a classy name. Now, the That's building, the name of the group, Lake Area AA? Yeah. The building was literally this house that should have been torn down. 100%. Probably condemnable. Oh, 100%. Yellow. It was oh, a no. yellow house. <laughs> It was the first house on the block, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right, right off of this highway. Uh, and I, I literally made it there, and it was like 8.15. Uh, A.M. or P.M.? P.M. Okay. I just wanted to slide in the door, mm-hmm. so get my bearings, find out where this place is, what it looks like inside, because this is going to be my new home. 100%. So I walked in, and... This was a very condemned house. And the floors were probably whacked out. <laughs> Dude, the floors kind of rolled yeah. to the front door. <laughs> I was handy. just trying to open the door and kind of slide in. Yeah. And I put my foot inside the door and the floor creaked. So loud. So loud. Like a haunted house. Yes. <laughs> and I, I closed the door behind me. I slid in and there was a couch, like I swear to God, like three feet away from the door. And I just sat down on that couch. Yeah. And you got nine people looking at me. Yeah. And these are older people. Yeah. And you got to remember, I'm 22 years old at this point. So these people are, you know, not 22 years old. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me and they said, do you know where you are? And I said, yeah. They said, you know what this is? I said, yeah. They're like, welcome. And I didn't give my name. I didn't, none of that. 
And then I came back the next day and I came back the next day, came back the next day. It was really cool. I'm sure that they had dealt with kids coming in there. Maybe had a rough weekend, maybe, you know, whatever. But they weren't prepared for a kid that rolled in at 22 years old that wasn't going to leave. And I wasn't going to leave. It was literally my last shot. That was it. So I immediately made friends. You know what I mean? Uh, These are people that were retired or retirement age. Isn't it cool when you're young and sober like that and you meet these old people that are just cool as all get out and they want to like take you to lunch and teach you about Alcoholics Anonymous and give you a platform and a place to be reborn from. It sounds to me like that's exactly what you're describing. Yeah, it was, it was very scary, super intimidating. Um, fast forward. It's kind of funny now. Fast forward. All of those people, they started that club. And all of those people came from the club that I'm a member of now. Which is what? Preston Group. Okay. They all moved to the lake to retire and started an AA meeting down there. Is that club still there, the AA Lakeside Club? Very small, not near what it was. Still in that ratty house? No, the house got knocked down. <laughs> the city was them. like, y'all got to go. <laughs> yeah, you got to go. We need to put an eggs on here or CVS. Yeah. So they, uh, they started, they all finished up at Preston, retired to the lake, started a meeting. Mm-hmm. I went to the lake to sober up, came back to Dallas, just happened to run into a meeting at the Preston Group, and immediately felt at home. Just immediately. Just kind of built for it. Did they tell you to go there? No, they, they didn't tell me where to go. They had all mentioned that they had come from the Preston Group, and this guy knew this guy, and this guy knew that guy. Mm-hmm. They had always, you know, they, they really loved this guy. So they were all veterans of that group. So it was it was really, really cool. I stayed there right at a year. Cause I'd made this deal with the judge that, hey man, I'm gonna I'm gonna move back in with my parents. I'm gonna go to school. I'm gonna get this, you know, knocked out. And we'll kind of go from there. And he was like, all right, you got one shot. And I made the most of that one shot. Were you on paper? Were you getting your paper signed for oh, yeah, the 100%, court? 100%. Yeah. 100%. The first time I heard anybody talk about um, a way that they got into the program and he was explaining, he's like, yeah, I got the nudge from the judge. That's it. I was like, what's the nudge from the judge? He's like, dude, I was on paper when I got here. I was like, what is on paper, dude? He's like, I had to get my stuff signed, bro. I was on probation. So he would get his paper signed and i think it says the date the group the topic the chairman and then i think the signature of the chairperson and then those people would take them back to their probation or parole officers and show that to them you did that 100 percent. really i did that i was on probation for five years yeah 
if you do a third of your probation, okay, a lot of a lot of people don't realize the uh-huh. in, ins and outs of probation and what what all that means. If you if you did a third of your probation, problem free, um, you could go in and ask to be released from probation. I didn't know that. So I went in and asked, and they said, "Ask us again in six months." Okay. So six months rolls by. Ask them again, and they said yes. I had zero infractions. Uh-huh. Um, Who do you ask? The probation officer. Probation officer, and the probation officer kicks it up to her boss, and yeah. her boss kicks it uh, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And usually, by this time, they're like, "Okay, so here's the deal: you've had no more problems. There's no, not even a driving, you know, ticket. No, no tickets, nothing. Yeah. Um, you've had zero problems. We've done UAs, so you're good there. What's a UA for the people that don't know? What's a UA? Your uh, your analysis, and you had to pee in a cup. Oh, absolutely! And the court was looking for problems. They were looking for anything they could. Did you? How many times did you do a, a UA? How many times did you have to pee in a cup? Four or five times out of a two or three years on mm-hmm. probation. And it was random. It wasn't like oh, every third every third visit you're going to get a UA. How much did it cost? You're paying a monthly fee, right? I was paying a monthly fee. Mm-hmm. Did and you, how much was that like ish? I think it was like 150 bucks a month. And that goes to the state of Texas or whatever? I guess. I don't know where that money goes. Did you have a blower on your car, like a Mm-mm. interlocking device? No, Did because you? because mine was drugs. It wasn't. Yeah. They, they do a lot of that for like DWIs. Drunk driving. Drunk driving. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. But no, mine was drugs. So they didn't, they didn't really, they didn't really do any of that to me. So they took you off probation. You asked, they said, ask us again in six months. You did. They took you off. And then what happened? Yeah, basically I cut them a check. They were like, hey, you still got to make these payments. What? For the, all the time that you didn't do? Oh, at 100%. <laughs> they're like, hey. They're like, we need a 2500 brother. Right. So they were like, hey, you need to make these payments. <laughs> and as long as you don't miss any of these payments, you're good. Would they let you just stroke one check for the last 2500 or? I mean, I'm sure most people would. I didn't have that kind of money. So Dude, I, was, I was trying to grind it out. So were you going up there every month and paying them in money orders or were you mailing just a check ma- in? Mailing a money order. And let me tell you, okay, how that, scary. Money, that money order was never <laughs> late one time. That was your number one goal. That was my number one goal. So when you launched out of the lake area and came back to, to Preston, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Let's go through your early sobriety. So... I had, uh, and when I say early sobriety, what I mean to the people that are listening out there, to me, early sobriety is anything under five years. Right. A lot of people probably don't want to hear that. <laughs> a lot of people like, early sobriety, six months, dude. And I'm like, early sobriety is anything below five years. Six months, you're in your infancy. Yeah, yeah baby. It's just uh, anything under five years is early sobriety to me. So let's cover that area. So to be clear, full disclaimer, I moved back to the lake to go to hair school. Okay. And most people kind of freak out on this. They're like, wait a minute, you're a hairdresser? And it's like, yes. Okay. You got a cosmetology license and all that? Yes. Okay. So. What do you do? You. I specialized in color and do color only. Okay. So you you color people's hair all day. So I I came back to Dallas, got involved with Tony and Guy, very British company. Oh yeah. Big time. Um, in the very early 90s. We're talking 93, I bet they loved you. They had a little corporate office right up here. They did. Right up the road. Been inside that corporate office many, many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm working for Tony and Guy. My roommate at the time, let me back up just a second. I leave the lake and I called a buddy of mine that I was in treatment with. 
And I was like, hey, man, I need a place to stay. And he was like, dude, I need a roommate. So I moved in with him. Had this house on Lower Greenville. Another one of the guys that I'd been in treatment with was a roommate of his as well. Mm-hmm. So there was like six or seven of us, just guys that were all sober, running around together. And we had a buddy that happened to, he had a doctor's appointment. And his doctor's appointment ran a little early or late or however it was. And he went over to the Preston group. And he rolled in there and he was like, dude, we're going to the Preston group from here on out. (laughs) And I was like, okay, that's cool. So we had been going to meetings. uh, Why do you want to go to the Preston group? They had good parking and nice chairs. I mean, that was part of it. That was part of it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You got to remember back then, we were still smoking in meetings. I mean, there there was a huge. Oh my God. I forgot when Preston had smoking section. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Did you, were you, so you were going there back in the day when it was in the other location. So great. And you had to go down that big yellow stained smoke hallway. So great. And then you guys would all smoke in that front room. And then we would all go in the back to the non-smoking and it would just all seep into our room. So great. The friggin' signs on the wall are supposed to be white. Y'all turned them yellow. Yes. That's how much smoking you. I used to watch you guys. I used to watch you guys in the smoking room through the glass and I would see people smoking and their cigarette was getting ready to go out. So they would take another one out and then they would light their new one with the tip of their old one, which was still lit and getting ready to die. And they just, I was like, wow. Mm. I was like, they are not stopping, dude. Yeah, I haven't smoked in years. <laughs> just hearing you say that makes me want to smoke. They were getting it, man. Oh, dude, it was it was awesome sitting in meetings with people that were smoking. Yeah, uh, and you could you could usually you usually sit around the same people. You know what I mean? Like, there's always kind of the same people that kind of sit in the same general. What do you area. think about that? Isn't that weird? That t- it's not like a human behavior thing because I've noticed that at all the AA clubs I go to, I'd say seventy percent of the people try to sit in the same seat all the time. All the time. It's just a familiarity. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's, it's a human like, deal, right? Right. It's just like you know what? That's where I'm comfortable. That's my that's, chair. That's my chair. Have you ever seen anybody ask anybody to get up and move? I have. Oh yeah. My sponsor yeah. has asked people to move. He's yeah. not my current sponsor, not Scott D, but my old sponsor, Jimmy D. Uh, he would he would get ask people to move. Yeah, and I'd be like, bro, yeah, just get here earlier. Don't be asking people to move out right. of your chair. <laughs> okay, yeah. sorry. So you you got going in the Preston group. So there were six or seven of us that we were all in recovery. Uh, we were all just trying to grind out a living, try to get our careers going. And we ran around just nonstop. I mean, everything kind of sounds fun. It, it was awesome. It was awesome for me. It was like this is the golden years of hundred percent because you were locked up during the oh my god younger yeah. times of your life. So you must have been really enjoying that. Oh, I was thoroughly enjoying it. So we end up uh, kind of making Preston Group our home, and there were a lot of people that weren't real stoked on us showing up at the <laughs> Preston Group. Because, you know, the Preston Group sits in a higher class part of town. The highest, yes. So we're not really high class. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like the, he, That guy's from the late group. I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, we didn't come in Silver Spoon. So we show up, and there were a lot of people that were irritated. But there were a lot of cute girls there. And the way we looked at it, hey, man, I got to be in a meeting anyway. Why not have a nice view? So... We start going to the Preston Group, and I was literally working right behind it. Sherry Lane, Tony and Guy. Oh, okay. So, the salon back there? I didn't right. know that. 
So I could literally. That's cool. I could split for about 30, 45 minutes, uh-huh. catch a meeting and go back to work. That's so cool. Which, which was awesome. Did you try to schedule it like that? If it worked out, I really, I, it was just like that. That's what I'm going to do. Did if you, I could make it happen. Did you ever act or, add, or did you ever add any activator or tone to somebody's situation on their hair to make it go a little faster? So you hit the <laughs> noon meeting, <laughs> turn up the heat on the deal. Uh, right. I mean, if it worked out, I was there. Okay. If it didn't work out, you would stay, I'd stay. And then I'd go to the six. Yeah. And a lot of times I'd go to the noon and then the six. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's not like we had a lot going on. Do you uh-huh. know what I mean? I was working, going to meetings, we had a couple of our buddies decided that this wasn't, this wasn't their thing. You know what I mean? So they, they went out and they started leading the other life. And um, one by one, they started kind of dropping off. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's, that's when I realized, hey, man, I, I got to get busy. I got I I to stay involved in this. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't have the luxury they had. Like they had been sober since they had come out of rehab. Uh, I spiraled out of control way before then. So it was like, no, nah, this, this is, this is my life. This is my lifeboat. I'm, I'm yeah, guarding my life. You were out of chances, man. I was. So I'm the only one left of all those guys. It's still in recovery. Um, some are doing okay. Some are not doing okay. I wouldn't trade places with any of them. Wouldn't trade places with any of them. So Preston has been my home group since late 94, early 95. Wow. Uh, now that's not to say I don't go to other meetings because I love other meetings. Hundred um, percent, me too. What's what's one of your other favorite meetings that you like to go to? Oh, I love No Hassle. I haven't been there in a long time. I had a lot of friends that went to No Hassle. Still exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Um, went to traditional. Went to. Uh, have you been in our Bishop Arts yet? Have you tried the Bishop Arts group? I have not. It's fun. I haven't been just because it's so far down. Yeah, there. yeah, it's got cool architecture and right. like Art Deco. The ceilings are made out of tin tiles. It's it's a really cool group. I go to the Aquarius group. I go to Clean Air North. I go to the Addison group. I go to the Gift and Irving, Rockwall, Rowlett. Um, there's some groups I haven't been to. I'd like to go to. I've never been to Bellwood, and I've never been to Lake Highlands. Those are Lake Highlands is awesome. It's an awesome group. I've know some cool people that go there. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's, I mean, even at 22 years sober for myself, there's still things in front of me, other groups that I've heard about in my ear that I'd like to get, go to. I do go to the um, Georgetown. And I also go to the um, Frisco group up mm-hmm. north of here, about 20 minutes north of here. I think it's important to go to a bunch of other meetings, but it's that's good. That's it's just a, me. It's a, it's a good thing. Plus I encourage people definitely have a home group. Definitely be accountable. But get out there and see some other meetings because, dude, when you're new in recovery, especially younger people, because I came in when, when I was you know, in my 20s, um, I encourage them to go to other groups because it lets them know that, dude, there's so much more out there. It's not just your group. It's not just what goes on inside your AA club. AA is a massive thing. It's mm-hmm. huge. It's, hu- it's mind-boggling how big it is. Yeah. And the cool part is, is when you go to another club, everyone knows you're a visitor and everyone's curious. And they're like, hey, man, are you visiting? Are you new? What's going on? Because you have immediate family there. That's that's family. Like they understand that's your people. Yeah. And sometimes you'll find that, hey, man, this is a better fit. Like, I like what they're saying over here. This is really cool. Like, I've gone to different clubs for different amounts of time. 
I love Addison. I love clean air. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. They used to smoke at Addison, too. Oh you remember God, that? It was the best. Did you ever smoke any cigarettes best. at the Addison? Yes. <laughs> they used to get it, dude. <laughs> they used to remember those smoke eaters? They used to have bolted up on the wall. Yes. And yes. I was like, I was like, I can't even see the smoke eaters. The the smoke is so thick in this room. I was like, it's so bad. I was like, I don't think they're working. <laughs> and it's on overload. Like, yeah, and I'd be like, this is a weird color of paint they chose for the wall. It's like nicotine yellow. I was like, what, what, are, they, like, what are they doing over here? <laughs> Yeah, man. God, they used to smoke. We got we got sober early, and then you know whatever. But yeah, I just remember the old days, man. I remember going to old, I remember going to meetings and people. After the meetings, I would hang out because I liked the people and I liked the group. And I didn't know where to go and have nothing going on. And they they would be like the old cats, the old ladies, and the old dudes would come up to me and they'd be like, "What are you doing?" And I'd be like, "I'm just sitting here on this couch, man. That was a really good meeting. Didn't you like that meeting? That was really good, right?" And they're like, "Yeah, it was good. Why don't you get up off the couch and go clean the ashtrays?" Right. And I'd be like, the first time that Ann Swanson said that to me, I looked at her and she had been sober like 32 years and I had like six months. And Ann Swanson goes, get up off the couch and go clean the ashtrays. A couple things raced through my mind when she (laughs) said that. (laughs) The first thing I thought was that, like, I don't know if she was confused. Like, I don't know if she was talking to somebody else, but there was nobody else in the room. I was like, she's got to be talking to somebody else. I looked around and it was just her and I in the room. I was like, okay, wait, she's totally talking to me. And then I thought, oh, well, this poor old lady, she seems nice or anything, but she's confused because I always go to the non-smoking meetings. Like she never sees me in the smoking meetings. And I sit in the non-smoking meetings all the time. So she must have me confused with somebody else. So I said, Hey, Ann, I, I, I don't, I don't smoke. I'm, I'm not a smoker. Why, why would I go clean the ashtrays? And she looked at me and she goes, Oh dear, sweet boy. I didn't ask you if you smoke cigarettes or didn't smoke cigarettes. I told you to get up off the couch and go to the back and get the ashtrays and clean them out. That's what I said. And I was like, Oh my God. And I did it, man. I got up. I got up and I went back there and I went in the smoking room and I got all the ashtrays and I dumped them all out in the the big trash cans. And I went back to the back sink where we washed the ashtrays and they had a a brush back there with some Dawn and I cleaned all the ashtrays. I'm so mad. I'm like young, young kid cleaning ashtrays. I'm non-smoker. So mad, so grossed out. (laughs) And, um, later that day, I felt like I was more a part of that group. Like yeah. I did it and I left and I felt first I was mad. And then I was like, you know what, dude, you helped that group today and you did something you didn't want to do. And there's really no reason that you would have done that other than the fact that you're serious about alcoholics and honest, and you're serious about being sober and you're serious about doing what the people that are there that have been longer than they're they've been there longer than you. And they're smarter than you, like Ann Swanson, who you love and adore. So, I was proud of myself. I was disgusted, but I was proud of myself. But yeah, there used to be a lot of cigarette smoking going on back oh in the day. Oh my God, so much. I mean, for me, AA will always be coffee and cigarettes. <laughs> I don't even smoke anymore. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I miss it. I miss that. So I, li- I like going to small town clubs where they're still sitting there smoking inside the meeting. Yeah. Uh, it's just reminiscent. So let's talk about God for a minute. You've mentioned church several times. So run me back a little bit through your childhood about were you exposed to religion? Were you exposed to God? Did you believe it? And then the follow up with that is like when you got to Alcoholics Anonymous and you saw the word God on the steps and on the walls, how did you feel about that? Were you triggered? I mean, what did you think when you saw the word God involved with recovery? So I grew up in a very Episcopal home. Uh, My parents just, that's where they landed uh, my mom was Church of Christ. My dad was Methodist. And he said, I went Methodist because that's where all the hot girls were. Um, 
so they landed on Episcopal, and they, they kind of made that their, their religion. So, of course, I had no say in it. So I grew up in the Episcopal religion. Uh, was an altar boy, the whole nine yards. So did vacation Bible school nonstop. Uh, we had Bible study. I mean, so we, we were immense. I mean, we were immersed in the church. Uh, so fast forward, you go through, you know, half the stuff that I've been through, you start to see the hand of God there. If you don't, you, there's something really wrong with your frontal lobes. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I was on a very short train going real fast. Like there was very little track left for me and I was moving at a light speed and something stopped that. And it wasn't because I wanted it to stop. I was having a good time. Um, so in looking back at it, I had the hand of God all over my program and, and all of this, 100%. Now going to church... I went because my parents made me. You don't have a choice. And we went Sundays, we went Wednesdays. I mean, we, we, did, we did the whole nine yards. As an adult, I, I try really hard not to speak ill of the church and all that it does because those people do good things. And I, I never saw God there. I just didn't. Uh, it's not to say that it, he's not there. It's just for me, it wasn't there. I see God inside the rooms of AA. Yeah. Because you see the miracles first and foremost. And you are one of them. Try to be. Try mm, to be. You are. Uh, That's what I tell my wife. I tell my wife that AA is my church. Right. I was like, because we, we go to church. We go to the fellowship, Grapevine now. And I told her, I was like, yo, you know, I love it. And I'm glad we go. You need to have a spiritual home. I want you to go and I want our son Michael to go. And I like it and I'll go and stuff too. But I, I feed so tremendously and deeply spiritually to Alcoholics Anonymous that, that I'm so satiated and full of, of, of my spirituality. I drink so deeply from that cup that AA is like my church and my home. And I don't want the listeners to be confused about that. I'll try to explain it the best I can. I feel like I've already explained it the best I can. I, and you were doing the same thing before I started talking. You see, I see the power and the miracles in the eyeballs and the, the lives of the people that come in after me. And I watch them change and I watch the light come back on and I watch them reborn and I watch them flourish not all of them but the ones that do they restore and continue and deepen my faith and hope that there is a higher power and I can relate to those newcomers that come in and flourish and the light comes back on because I was one of them and I walked the same path it's it's been a while since I was new but I do remember what it was like for sure oh 100% do you and your you're married now right I am married do you guys go to church now or what do you no. what do you do no okay no. so you go to AA and that's kind of your spiritual home does your wife what does your wife do for her spiritual home do you know um we're very much connected with our spiritual life um do you guys pray together oh 100% that's cool yeah yeah, I do too. Um, I was embarrassed at first to do that with my it's wife. Weird, right? it's, very it's weird, right? It's weird. I asked her when we first got married, I was doing it by myself in the bathroom with the door closed. Right. For real. And then I was like, I kept, I was like, I'm married to this chick. Why am I in the bathroom 
embarrassed about the fact that I'm praying and meditating and why is the door closed? Um, why don't I ask her possibly if she would be interested in joining me in prayer and meditation? And so I was embarrassed and I, but I did. And I said, Hey girl, you know, I'm an AA and it's all based off for, you know, my spirituality and God keeps me sober and I pray every day and all that. And I do it by myself in the bathroom with door closed and I'm kind of embarrassed about it. I don't know why, but would you like to possibly join me in, in morning devotion time and prayer and meditation? She said, yes. And we've been doing it for years since. And That's it's, cool. it's fun. That's cool. It's interesting. So I grew up in that family where we said our nightly prayers together mm-hmm. and that was kind of weird. Do you know what I mean? It's still in saying it, it sounds weird. What do you mean? Like say uh, your nightly prayers together, like all four of y'all would like kneel. There, beside was, the there, there were six of us and mm-hmm. we would sit in the living room and we would, each one of us would kind of go through and say our stuff and then uh. we would go to bed. So when my every wife, night? every night, and, and when you would say what, what you were grateful for or what had happened that day. Dude, or? I have no idea. I have no, I did, I, think quit. That's I did a lot cool. of drinking, a lot of drugs <laughs> since then. So. deleted it. So I just remember it happening and it was very odd. Uh, and I felt, I felt weird. Your about mom it. and dad still do that. Do you, are they still around? No, my parents are super religious. So my, my dad passed in 12, but my mom is still a fixture at her church. Okay. It's that's, a big part of her life. Is she still out the lake? Yeah. She still have a boat up in the boathouse. Nope. I was nope. like, she come moved, on. She moved, she moved off the water. Okay. Uh, less upkeep, less maintenance. Oh yeah, less less property taxes. I think less when you're on the front taxes. row, I think it's like quadruple it is. from what you pay on the second row. So uh, she's she's very much active in her church and in her religion and in her spirituality. Yeah, that's uh, nice. And and I owe her a lot because you know she was the one that really brought it into our house and kind of gave us that foundation. Mm-hmm. Um. So, and back to your question, when I came in and saw God in the very first steps, it was like, dude, I didn't have a problem with it. Okay. I didn't. I was going to get this or I was going to die. So, Not everybody feels that way. I know. Some people are horrified when they see that and they're, yeah. like, they're like, what? Well, for me, in the experience that I've had, yeah. and this is just me, if they come in and they got a problem with it, they may not be ready. Because I didn't have a problem with any of it. I mean, zero. That's good. That's a good place to start. It's a great place to start. Yeah, the foundation um, is ready for a, a structure to be built upon oh, it at yeah. that point. So I had the desperation of a drowning man. That's fantastic. I, I felt the same way. I want to read a couple of announcements. Sobershares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that can be played back on our next episode. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can support us financially with a donation by clicking on the PayPal donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing the basket at a meeting to help keep sober shares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly expenses. I want to mention a few of our listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward in the last week. Chris F., David R., Damon D., Stacy T., and Veronica J. So thank you for that. I want to assure you that I value your time and attention as a listener. And our sole focus here at this podcast is to help people and that guides everything that we do here. And now let's get back to our guest. 
Can you tell me about your AA sponsor and how did you get one and how have they helped you? Sponsorship is, a, is, is very important. But let me preface that with saying, so is making friends inside the room. Because you may not be able to get in touch with your sponsor, but you can get in touch with your friends. So I make it very clear, hey man, it's, it's, it's very important that you have a sponsor. It's also equally important to make friends inside your club. And not just friends that are going to go play golf with you, but people that will hold you accountable. So my very first sponsor, I went out to his house and asked him to be my sponsor. And I still remember driving out to his house, how nervous I was. My hands were sweating. I mean, I was just super freaked out about asking this guy to sponsor me. He had a used car lot and uh, like a couple mechanics that worked on his property. And he was standing out there and he was shooting the breeze with the mechanics and whatnot. And we were standing in one of the bays and I said, hey man, can I ask you a question? He said, sure, what's up? I said, dude, I need a sponsor. Would you sponsor me? And he looked me square in my face and he said, no. And I kind of stood there in shock because, you know, I was a little freaked out. I just kind of saw that going a different way. <laughs> it was like, I kind of thought that this wasn't going to be that. In looking back at it, he was super freaked out. He was like, uh, no. I was like, well, I mean, dude, I kind of need one, you know, and I, I, I wasn't, you know, and I'm kind of stumbling through this. And I was like, are you sure? And he was like, yeah, I'm sure. And I was like, wow. I was like, dude, I... I really need a sponsor. And he kind of stood there for a minute and he was like, All right, well, I'll, I'll do the best I can. Now, granted, this guy was 40 years older than I am, if not even more so. He had four years sober. So this guy's in his 60s. He was an awesome sponsor. He was awesome. Flawed. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, we're coming to AA and we're going to get pure and we're going to get the white robe and we're going to glide down the halls. And that's not the thing. That's not the thing. We're here to not die and to practice these principles in all our affairs. But it's practice, not perfection. I've had numerous sponsors. Yeah, well, you've been sober a long time. What, 29 years? Mm-hmm. I've had numerous sponsors. Yeah. Um, I've, asked sponsor, I've asked people to sponsor me that said yes. Like your guy said no, and then he said yes, I'll do the best you can. I've had some guys sponsor me that, that said yes that probably should have said no because they didn't have time for me. And they probably didn't think I was actually going to call them. Right. And I actually did call them. And so when I did call them, they were like, "Mm, well, they wouldn't call me back. Or they, they, I'd call them and I could hear that they were driving. And they were like, I could tell they were paying more attention to driving than me. And I was eventually like, okay. One time I asked a guy to sponsor me. And um, I don't know whatever happened to him. I'm not going to say his name. But I really liked the way he sounded in meetings. He sounded so good in meetings. And I I guess I had never caught his sobriety date. Like, I guess I had never heard him say his sobriety date. And I ended up asking him to sponsor me. And it turned out he had less time than I did, which Mm -hmm. I guess is fine. I don't know what those rules or not rules. But he had less time than I did. And it ended up that uh, he he just didn't have time for me. It just didn't work out. Right. And I've, I've gone through sponsors too. I've been sober a long time too. They die on you. Mm-hmm. They move or you move or the relationship runs at cor- its course and you move on to a different phase of your life and you're looking for somebody that, that, can, that can help you where you are now. I try to have some general loose rules for sponsors when I'm looking to find somebody to sponsor me. I want somebody that's sober longer than I am. 
I want somebody that's smarter than I am. I want somebody that's been a father longer than I am. I want somebody that's been married longer than I am. I want somebody uh, who is successful in business and has owned their own business and worked for themselves before. And I want somebody that's spiritually more advanced than I am so I can follow them because I'm trying to like learn from this guy. My sponsor today, Scott D, he, uh, he possesses all those qualities. So when I felt asked him to be my sponsor, I was very comfortable with it because A, I knew I needed one. B, I knew he fit the bill. C, I knew he sponsored other people. And D, I liked the way he sounded in meetings. And then after I got to know him and met him, I liked the, his walk outside of meetings too. It's not just what he said in meetings, but the way that he lived his life. Is he perfect? No. Am I perfect? No. Are you perfect? No. None of us are perfect, but it's, it's something for me to aspire to in a lot of ways. And um, sponsors have helped me learn how to do a plethora of things. And one of the things, one of the best things I ever learned from AA sponsors, how to talk to my wife. And the guy that told me how to do it was um, not married. He was a single guy and he was my sponsor. And he told me how, how to speak to my wife in a loving and kind way. Um, and uh, I remember I was talking to him one day, I think I had about 11, 12 years sober and I was driving down the road and he's like, how's it going with your wife? And I was like, blah, 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 blah. I was like saying all this stuff and like issues I was having and stuff. And then he's like, you're going home to talk to her right now, right? And I was like, yeah, this is what y'all gonna talk about, right? And he's like, yeah. He's like, this is what you have told her before and it didn't work out. And it was a lot of misunderstandings and hurt feelings, right? And I was like, yeah. He goes, hey, do this instead. Do this instead. Say this to her. Talk to her like this. Say this. And he started talking and I almost wrecked the car. It sounded so good. I pulled over. I was like, wait, wait, stop. I was like, wait, wait, stop. And I pulled over in this church parking lot and I grabbed my, I carry a pencil and a paper in my car and I grabbed my pencil and I grabbed my paper. I was like, now say that again, but say it very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started writing down what he said. And I was like, I was like, bro, this is the key. This is, this is, this is how I should be talking to her. This is what I should be saying. There's love in here. There's compassion in here. There's understanding there. There's also, um, there's a part of it that says, um, she might be right. You know, she might be right. Maybe I'm wrong. And I, I put that all in there and I went and talked to her and told her, I never told her that I got the ammunition or the, 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 the talking points from my AA sponsor, but. Hey man, who, who cares where it comes from? <laughs> it worked. As long dude. as it's effective. <laughs> it worked. Know? And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that this single guy was so good at giving me advice on how to talk to my wife. Right. There's a lot of things. So inside my recovery, I've had several different types of sponsors. And I've gone through the steps many different ways with many different people. Yeah. <clears throat> there are a lot of people that I went through the steps once. I don't have to do it again. That's what the 10 steps for. Hey man, go with God. You know, if that's where you feel you are, I am not knocking it. Not, it's not enough for me. The longer I've stayed sober, the clearer my head has become. The more wreckage I recognize I've done, the more work I have to do. So you so, reworked them and you reworked them several times. Oh yeah. Numerous times with numerous people. Yeah. And then um, what step study situations or one-on-one -on -one with your sponsor or both? One-on-one -on -one with my sponsor, one-on-one -on -one with different people, one-on-one yeah. -on -one with, uh, if my sponsor has a problem with me going through the steps with someone else, that's what it is. It's his problem. Mm -hmm. This is my recovery. Mm -hmm. It's not his. Yeah. They're just guides. It's my journey. Right. So I try to be a good guide. I'm not the one that's cracking the whip. Call me every day. That's, that's not me. Because yeah. I'm, I'm not that guy. I wasn't going to do it. Uh, and now with technology being what it is, 
dude, fire off a text. Let me know you're breathing. You mm-hmm. know, it is what it is. Um, if you need me, I'm here. But I'm not going to impose it on them. Do you know what I mean? And for a lot of people, that works for them, and that's cool. I'm not knocking it, but that's that's not who I am. It's not my persona. Um, so I've gone through the steps many different ways, many different ways. I go through the steps on my recovery. I've gone through the steps on my relationships. I've gone through the steps uh, on business. Did you I mean, do it for cigarettes? You know, it's weird. I did not do it for cigarettes. I didn't. I've heard people say that they have. I know a lot of people that it worked for them. Mm-hmm. Um, How'd you quit smoking? I just quit. No, oh, really? Well, you just knew it was bad for you? Were you coughing? No. You just knew it was no. bad for you? Everyone in my family that's passed on, minus one person, has died of cancer. Uh-huh. So it was like, this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> this, is just, this is just stupid behavior. Did people at your work or home or anything ever say, hey, you smell like smoke, like in your hair and your clothes oh, I and could, stuff? I could care less. I, <laughs> I wouldn't. What about your clients? Did you, what wouldn't phase me at all. What wouldn't care. You? <laughs> wouldn't care. Oh I was like, dude. I'm a smoker. You know, <laughs> you know, no one ever brought it to my attention. Um. And I, I, before I was married, I dated girls that didn't smoke mm-hmm. and none of them ever, I dated this one girl. She was like, Hey man, maybe, maybe brush your teeth. You, know, right. you smoke. I don't smoke. And it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Mouthwash works the exact same. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the only one. She okay. was the only one, but she was super hypersensitive mm-hmm. uh, to it because both of her parents smoked. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So she didn't like it. Um, I just quit. I was just like, you know what? It just made sense to me. It's like, when it came to smoking, I knew that there was going to be a last day. There's going to be a last day of my smoking. Really? And I could visualize that last day. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? That's today. Really? You decided on that day? Yeah. It was like, that's it. I'm done. Did you get to the end of a pack and you're like... No, just... Threw, just really? Just chunked them? Just done. Now, when the whole vaping thing came along... Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm going to get on the vaping train. This, it's, it's, it's the healthy cigarette. <laughs> okay. So I started vaping, and I was so addicted to vaping, I had to go back to smoking <laughs> to get away from the vaping. So I started smoking again because I knew I could quit cigarettes. Yeah. So <laughs> but, I've never heard anybody say that before. But I know now if I were to go take a drag off a cigarette, by uh-huh. the end of the week, I'll be buying a carton. Okay. It's just that simple. Okay. And let me tell you, I loved smoking. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Everything about it, but it absolutely will kill you. How much are they now? Like eight or nine dollars a pack? I have no idea. I think they're expensive. No, I, I mean ten bucks a pack. I mean that's. I think they are, and you get twenty outrageous. in a pack. That's it. I get twenty little cigarettes. They probably make them smaller and smaller. So I want to ask you a question. Like I know you sponsor people. Mm-hmm. So how has you been sober a long time? So how how has your sponsorship style? changed over the years in the arc of your sobriety mine has as a sponsor as yours changed are you still a 100 percent okay can you talk to me how has it changed we all come into this with a lot of garbage do you know what i mean dude there's no way no one shows up to aa on a winning streak (laughs) so we all have a lot of garbage we all have a lot of bs that we carry around with us right it's super important to me not to push that off on my sponsees if they're going through something that I've gone through, I need to let them have that experience. I'm not here to rob them of their pain, their misery, their joy, their decision-making process. It's my place to make them look at all the options. 
you do what you're going to do because that's how we infinitely learn. That's how kids learn. Oh, you fell down? Well, you need to get up. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly how simple this thing is. But I, I give them a lot of grace because there weren't a lot of people out there that gave me a lot of grace. But I let them know, hey, man, if you start seeming squirrely, like if things are starting to become more important than your program, then I'm probably going to call you out on it because I don't want to see you die. Because people forget this is a deadly disease and people die from it every day. People are dying from it right now. How do you do that? How do you provide that service for them? How do you call them out? And do you do it gently? Like if you see a sponsee fading and their meeting attendance is slipping off and they're not calling you as much anymore, how do you, do you, how do you, how do you address that as a sponsor now? With a lot of grace, a lot of compassion. And we all come into the rooms with a lot of shame. So I try really, really hard not to shame anyone. What do you say to them? Hey, man, I haven't seen you in a while. You doing all right? And then what? And what? Be good to see you. you (laughs) Be good to see you. Okay. Uh, Because that's, I would, I would want to hear that from a friend. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I I would want to hear that from one of my brothers. I mean, you doing all right? You good? I haven't seen you in a while. Is everything all right? Yeah. It's just that simple. I don't make it threatening. I don't make it shameful. I just let them know, hey, man, be good to see you. You know, I hope everything's well. Yeah. If you need me, I'm here. But in talking to them and talking through the stuff that you always talk to your sponsor about, if it sounds a little messed up, I usually just tell them, hey, man, this sounds a little messed up. Where's God in this? Have you prayed about this? And are you open to what he has for you? Because at the end of the day, that's what this is. You're getting yourself out of the way so God can do his thing. If you're in the way, you're doing your thing, not God's thing. And it's really important for us to do God's thing. Like, really important. Like, how important? Super important. Like, life it's, or death? I mean, it's life or death. It really is. Yeah. Now, is it life or death? Maybe not on all. Mm, no. But yeah. you get these little... We're trending towards that. <laughs> right. It's like, the more you're doing you, the less you're doing him. And there is a happy median and everyone has to learn in their own, in their own way and in their own time. But if you start doing more you and less AA, you start getting super busy with work, super busy with her, super busy with your hobbies, life is good, and you forget why life is good, what got you there, life's going to get really bad. And it usually doesn't happen overnight. It's not like, you know, oh, you went from A to Z that quick. But the insanity returns, and then we drink. How have you been able to avoid that pitfall for 29 years? Through God. Have you always stayed close to the center of Alcoholics Anonymous? What's the longest you've been consecutive days-wise without a meeting in 29 years? I think mine is, I'd have to think, in 22 years, I, I think one time I went a month. Okay. A, mo- a month without a meeting. And I, I couldn't get myself back in. I just started to not go. Right. Because I was working a lot. Right. Like I was working six days a week. And so I was exhausted and I wasn't going. And so I had, even if you're dumb at math, you can figure out this. If, if you're working six days a week and there's four weeks in a month, that means I got four days off a month, which is not very many days off in a month. And if you work 
back-to-back consecutive and some of the, your days are pushed around and messed up and you work six days in a row and then five days in a row, that's 11 days in a row you're working. And so I got to a point where I went a month and didn't go to a meeting and I could not get myself back in the meeting. So I just started to pray like a, like a madman because I was trying to force myself to go. I couldn't do it. And I was like, I started praying. I started praying. I said, like, God, I, I got to get back in these meetings. I can't. I can't lose focus here. I, I know I'll drink again. And if I, do, I drink again or use drugs again, I'm going to die. Can you please help me get me back in these meetings? And uh, I was able to get back in. So what's the longest that you've gone, you think, maybe in 29 years? Did you have any big gaps? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, after my friends started going out, we were all going to Preston together, and we were running around together, and one after the other after the other, they start going out. Yeah. You don't have any friends in the rooms, you know what I mean? Like, you know people, but you don't have friends there. And you go and you say hey to people, and it's all that shallow, hey, hey, what's up, hey, what's up? Um, it was really difficult for me because that's where my crew was, and that's what we did, and they weren't going. Uh, so I quit going. I quit going for, like, years consecutive yeah years really like four five six years during early sobriety during the first no no this was like what years i think i was eight years in golly and didn't didn't go back to meetings is that right ish years ish yeah um, let's say I was 10 years sober mm-hmm. and I just quit going. Just quit going. For like three, three, four years? Three, four years, whatever. And what were you thinking during those three or four years? I was just busy. I was just, just busy. busy. Making money and Yeah, making money. And trying to build my business. Trying to, trying to take care of it. You know what I mean? Trying to take care of her and it. And this. What were you thinking during that time about your non-meeting attendance? Was it even? Well, now here's the thing. With a cat like me. Yeah. Uh, I started running the show. You're sponsoring yourself. Yeah. I started running the show. Okay. Um, I literally knew, and this has always been the crux for me. I knew I can't drink and can't do drugs. No, you it's, demonstrated. It's, yeah. It's, it's just not a successful thing for me, but do I really have to go to meetings? Nah, really? I mean, do I really have to go? So I literally took that to the nth degree and got super toxic and became super lonely. And then everything uh, in the bedevilments inside our, our textbook, everything that it talks about there in the bedevilments, I was living every day, literally every day. No emotional sobriety, couldn't, couldn't get along at work. I worked for myself. And I couldn't get along with my clients, my coworkers. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it was just a nightmare. And then I just decided, you know, I got, I got to go back to meetings. I just got to do this. So I would go and I'd hit a couple in a week or whatever. And then I would, ah, you know, you get the little fix and you're like, oh, it was awesome. I, need, I don't know why I quit going to meetings. And then the next week you don't go. And it has to become kind of your routine. You have to make it your routine and you have to make it part of your daily thing. So for me, having lost all my friends inside the, inside the rooms and trying to make new friends, it was, it was weird. Do you know what I mean? Cause there's just not a lot of cats in there my age with this amount of time, blah, blah. And you start putting all the roadblocks up in front of yourself. 
Well, I go back in and there was this group of women that had just gotten out of rehab. Big, huge group of women. There was like seven or eight of them. And I would sit, they sat on one side and I'd sat on the other side. And I just sat, and we were all still smoking at the time. And I sat and watched them. And it really reminded me of all my friends. And I was like, you know, that's cool. And I became friends with them. You know what I mean? At first it was just, hey, how are you? I really enjoyed what you said, blah, blah, blah. And then one thing led to another and we, we start knowing each other, you know, we know each other by name, we're grabbing coffee and it, it was a very cool, just organic thing that just kind of happened. Then you start meeting other people, you know what I mean? And you start hanging out with other people and then people come back, people that had been taking time off of meetings, they come back around and you're like, okay. And they're like, dude, you're still here. And it's like, <laughs> it's like well, kind of. Kinda. I just came back and they're like, would you go out? And I'm like, no, I didn't go out, but I haven't been doing this. So everyone's going to go through this. If you have long-term sobriety, you're going to take time off meetings. I've had people on this podcast with 31 years sober that tell the same story Mm -hmm. and they, and they do it in their twenties, like in their double digit big time sobriety, they stop going to meetings at 26 years sober and they get lost. They don't drink. A lot of them don't drink. A lot of them drink and die. Right. But a lot of them just get miserable. That's what it is. They just get miserable and they get back in. I had a very dear friend. She's passed on. She's from California. She said this. She said, you have to go to meetings. You can never stop going to meetings. She was like, imagine yourself in a different country. She's like, you're in a different country and no one speaks your language. So you've had to learn someone else's language. And then you're in the market one day and you hear your language. She's like, you don't even care who or what they're about. You're going to go over and talk to them. She's like, that's what AA is for us. It's our mother tongue. That's where we go to hear more about ourselves. And it's very, very true. I don't share a lot in meetings. And when I go sit in a meeting, I usually just sit and listen because I want to absorb it. You know, a lot of people are like, dude, I mean, you chair a lot of meetings, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, I get to steal. Because when you're chairing a meeting, you got to pay attention to what's going on. Yeah. And it's like having nine meetings inside one. Because you're so laser focused on what that person is saying that mm-hmm. you're actually in a meeting. Yeah. I mean, most people nowadays are on their phones or they're yucking it up with their friend. Hey, man, that's all good. I'm not, I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying. But when you chair a meeting and you absorb everything everyone's saying, it's huge. It's really huge. And you walk away super fulfilled from it. Um, and it usually takes me a couple of days to unpack everything that I've heard, yeah, which your, is cool. Your echoes of shares. 100%. Yeah. I've known you a long time, a couple of years for sure. And I have never heard you talk more than about two minutes max at a time right and i know you probably talk a lot i just haven't i don't know you that well and i've right. learning a lot and i've told some people i was going to be having you on the podcast and they were like they're like all right dude they're like i don't know very much about that guy <laughs> they're excited all these people that know that you're coming on the show they're like they're super excited they're like okay good we're gonna find out some more about him i mean i don't know that much about him i think he likes motorcycles and uh you do you like motorcycles somebody told Love me motorcycles yeah. i'm highly obsessed somebody told me you like motorcycles what, what, what do you like about them i mean what do you what Everything. Like I, start, I started riding 
dirt bikes when I was a super young kid. Okay. Did you like Evil Knievel? Oh, I loved Evil Knievel. Are you kidding me? Everyone did. Uh, that fool was crazy. I mean, he was awesome. Uh, love motorcycles. I love horses. My addiction for motorcycles came from horses. Mm-hmm. Went to church with a family that had tons of pasture, tons of land, bunch of horses, and that dad said to my dad, Hey, we need him. Can we just take him? And they were like, sure, take him. So here I am, I'm like eight or nine years old and I'm on horseback helping like herd cattle. How cool is that? And the first time the horse took off and ran across the field with me on its back, I was hooked. I was hooked. Did the horse have your permission to do that or he did? No, not at all. Eight years old. I had no idea what was happening. I just held onto the horn and kept going. Okay. And it was so amazing. I had this huge smile on my face and I just wanted to do it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And then we had some friends that moved in. And when you're young, it's super, you're in this super cool place when you're young. Because you're going to have friends because you're the same age mm-hmm. <laughs> or roundabout. You know what I mean? As you get older, it gets more complicated and it's weird. And, uh, you know, they might be like this or might be like that or yeah. they might like weird music. Who knows? Um, but we had some friends that moved in that had dirt bikes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, that's cool. And we got to know them. And because we grew up in the country, they had like 20 acres Wow, that their house sat on in town. So nice. They had all this land and they had a track that they had cut, you know, and it was real cool. And uh the minute I got on that dirt bike, I was hooked. And I still have a dirt bike to this day. I love it. I'm highly addicted to it. What kind? Is it a Honda or a Yamaha? Or? I ride KTM. Was is that the name of the brand? Yeah. KTM. Uh, I know KTM. there's Kawasaki too. Mm-hmm. KTM. Is it I, a 250 or what what is it? I, I ride a 250 two stroke. Those are uh, the big heavy ones. No, this is actually really light. It's about 300 pounds. Okay. And 290. What's two. the bigger class? Is there a 450 or something? There's 450s. There's 500s. I mean, there's... Where do the Supercross guys jump? 450s. 250s and 450s. Really? Yeah. That's I crazy. love watching that stuff. I love it. I didn't get into motocross um, young enough mm-hmm. because you have, to, you have to train your body and your mind <laughs> about that. If you get into it later in life, you're going to be in the hospital a lot. <laughs> Um, You're like, I don't know what happened to my wrist. It just went backwards on that lift. Right. So, I mean, most people that I know that have done motocross most of their life have like artificial parts in their body, you know, titanium shoulder, you got this titanium rod in your leg. I mean, it's, it's a brutal sport. Very brutal. So I never really got into that. We just kind of ride through the woods, you know, we just ride trails. Yeah. Uh, I've had pretty much everything. I've had Ducatis. I've had Harleys. Oh, I mean, really? you name it. I mean, I love, love, love it. Uh, ridden on tracks many, many times. I went with a buddy of mine, and he was full-blown addicted right off the bat. Yeah. So I went out there with him to ride on the track, and it got rained out. And there was this guy there who now I'm really good friends with. And I said, hey, man, can I ask you a question? He said, oh, yeah, what's up? I was like, dude. How much do you spend on this? And without hesitation and without blinking, he looked me right in my face and he said, you'll spend everything on it. I was like, dude, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not doing this. It's like, dude, I don't need another addiction. Oh my God. So I, I don't, I don't mess around with riding on the track anymore. Uh, I don't even ride on the street anymore. I've lost way too many friends. Uh, lost a friend of mine recently uh, that was hammered. He was hammered drunk on, uh, St. Patty's day. And I went to his funeral and um, 
he gave me so much grief about selling my last Harley. He was like, dude, I can't believe you would just sell it, just be done. And I was like, hey, man, it's just not fun anymore. People yeah. texting, people aren't paying attention. You know, it's like, dude, it's just, I just don't dig it. Yeah. So I got off the street and went back to the woods, and I've been super happy ever since. I love it. I absolutely love it. Have you ever ridden um, uh, a sidecar, a motorcycle with a sidecar on it? You know, I haven't. It's not to say that I wouldn't, but they just look weird. Yeah, they look weird. Yeah, it's it's the way that it it doesn't turn. It doesn't really pivot well. It doesn't look very good to me. I just wonder so, if you've ridden one. Uh-uh. I've never. I've seen people driving around Dallas with a, their dog in the sidecar. I think it's the, cool with, with the, the goggles. Cool glasses yeah, with on. the goggles. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Looks like a TV commercial. I'm like, dude, there's a dog in there with sunglasses <laughs> on. <laughs> what about a trike? I'm, I'm sure there's probably a lot of strong feelings out there in the biking community about trikes. They, I would like to ride one of those, I think. I mean, you know, for me... If you're out there and you're doing it, hey, man, more power to you. I don't care if you're riding a scooter. Mm-hmm. I don't really care. I mean, it's, do I, would I go out and buy a trike? No. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, Maybe if I, you were 75. I mean, I know a lot of guys that have uh, hip problems or back problems, or maybe they're missing a foot to buy mm-hmm. a trike because it's yeah. a little more stable. Yeah. So there's, there's all kinds of reasons. There's all kinds of wants desires i mean i i could care less if you're out there riding man hey go with it i saw um i saw a really cool i think harley davidson and honda both make really nice trikes they do i saw them and i was like what i think i saw a used one and the guy's like that one's twenty five thousand. yeah i was like for a used trike he's like usually he's like dude that bike won't be here more than four days he goes if you want it you need to get it it will be gone in four days I'm like, okay. I would say rent one somewhere. I don't want one. <laughs> and see if you really dig it. No. I um, used to have motorcycles a lot. I used to have a, um, I started off on a Honda Aero 50, which nice. is a moped, a nice Honda Aero yep. 50. Loved them. Rode that thing around this neighborhood a ton. And then I upgraded to a, um, they used to be called Honda Hurricanes. Mm-hmm. But then after they ended the Hurricane line, they came out with something called CBR. Mm-hmm. I don't know what CBR stands for, but I had a Honda CBR. 1989 600cc bike mm-hmm. and I really liked it and uh, I dropped it a few times and messed up the fairings and loaned it to a friend of mine and he crashed it really bad I mean he didn't get hurt but he crashed it pretty bad and uh, I got to learn a lot about um, having fun on a motorcycle and I and I got to a point where I was like I think I've had enough fun right I, I think that right. I I don't need to do this anymore. Right. I've had enough fun. I've ridden this thing for hundreds of hours. Um, I think I'm done. And so I sold it and I have not uh, gotten another motorcycle since then, but I, I'd be open to it, but it's, it's a little scary to me. So you have the 12 steps on a little piece of paper there in front of you. I want to ask you if you can select any one of the 12 steps that you'd like to highlight and discuss. Is there any one of those that interests you in, in talking a little bit more about to the audience? For me, I always go to the first step. Always. Uh, It's the one that I love to talk about the most. Where I am personally is more six and seven. Okay. Like right now, you're in six and seven a lot? Absolutely. And I think anyone with long-term sobriety, they live in six and seven. Because that's where, I mean, it all kind of gravitates towards. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit private and personal, but can you talk to us about one of the seven deadly sins or character defects? Or can you maybe... We can edit this part out if you say no, but I'm curious. Can you oh, maybe, dude? I'm an open book. Can whatever, you whatever share? You can you share something that you're working on right now in six and seven that, that's either troubling or you've had some success with? What's going on with you in six and seven right now, dude? I mean, honestly, 
for me to keep my ego in check, it's hard. Been around for a while. People don't like to call out the old timers. Do you know what I mean? They, they don't like to, hey, man, you need to keep this in check. Or, hey, you should really look at that. Or, hey, that's kind of messed up. So keeping your ego in check, for me, keeping my ego in check, is it's an all-day thing. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's an all-day thing. Yeah. What are some um, of the, how do you address it? What do you do? All kinds of ways. I mean, I have, I don't really share my sobriety date much in meetings. Um, a lot of guys are all about their number. I don't really care about it anymore. It's a cool thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm very appreciative and I, I thank God for it every day, but it's not who I am. I am not my number. I'm do you still not. pick up chips? Do you still go to the club and pick up your birthday chips? No, I absolutely do not. <sighs> okay. How long has it been since you've done that? Probably over 20 years. <laughs> What's your month? What's your birthday month? Uh, January. Okay. All right. I'm going to start working on you. So we can get you up there this year. Not going to happen. Make a return appearance. Happen. Has your wife ever seen you pick up a, a, a birthday chip? Mm-mm. Really? Okay. Never has. Really? No, she gives me one every year. Oh. Every year she gives me one. At the house or whatever. But, no, I, I mean, it's, it's, I have to keep my ego in check around it because yeah. there's very little difference between me and the guy that just walked in. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I start forgetting that, I'm in big trouble, big trouble. I'm not that far removed from where that dude is. Yeah. I'm just not. Just because I've had God's grace longer doesn't make it any less important that I'm doing exactly what that dude's doing. Yeah. And to remember how insanely frightening it is to be that guy. I mean, when I see people come in, it, it literally sends a shiver down my spine and I'm like, dude, that's so cool. But oh my God, that's so scary (laughs) to go back and do that again. It just makes me flash back to the part of your story where you were on the couch when you walked into that old house, that rickety old house and you sat on that couch. That's where you were. You were that dude. I was so scared. Yeah. So scared. Yeah. Uh, And there was nine people in there. I mean, I've walked in Mm -hmm. a Monday meeting and there's, you know, 60 people in there. It's like, holy shit. That meeting is big. It's like, dude, you could you could literally get in here and kind of hide a little bit. And there, no, there was no hiding. It was yeah. like, dude, you're not supposed to be here. What's going on? Yeah, do you know where you are? Do yeah. you know what this is? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was so freaky. You're like, yes, I do. Yep. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people roll in. Let's talk about like a noon meeting. I've seen a lot of people roll in at 12.02 and leave at like, you know, 12.59. Oh, dude, that, that, that was my MO. Are you kidding me? That was my like, MO for I a long time. Think. I loved it. Uh, and I could hide behind the fact, yeah, I got to get back to work. Yeah. So I would roll in just a little bit late and yeah. leave a little bit early. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that, I still made a meeting. Yeah. So still got the meeting, but there's, there's the meeting before the meeting. There's the meeting after the meeting. Yeah. Uh, I usually get to the club early. There's a group of guys that we kind of get up there and we, we, some people would say socialize. I would say we break each other's balls pretty hard. Yeah. Um, those guys are very near and dear to my heart. You know, I know what's going on inside their, their marriages, inside their lives, their fears. I mean, the whole nine yards. Uh, and that meeting that happens before the actual noon meeting is awesome. Yeah. It's awesome because I've met people that I don't, I don't think I really would have ever met in any other circumstance because there's people inside the rooms. You're super glad they're there, you know, but maybe you get to know them. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to get to know them. Maybe you don't. You know, um, these are cats that I don't think I would have 
had relationships with had I not been chairing this meeting uh, and gotten there early. And for one reason or another, they started showing up early and kind of messing with my serenity time. And I mean, it's, it's like, okay, well, this is kind of cool. And now I look forward to that meeting more than I do the noon meeting. Yeah. Because it's just more intimate and more personal. So do you already have a topic fleshed out before you get there to chair that meeting? Or do you kind of just, I mean, because if people are talking to you, talking to you, talking to you, and you don't have a topic, that's got to be stressful. Or do you already have one? It's, I mean, if I'm chairing the meeting, it's going to be revolving around step one. Really? Okay. Especially because it's a Monday noon. Mm-hmm. People are coming back. Yeah. People have just had hard weekends. Yeah. And there's a lot of old timers in that room for mm-hmm. one reason or another. We've been super blessed with that meeting, yeah. having people with, I mean, 30, 40 years inside that meeting, and there's multiple of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just this really cool thing that just happened. Um, you don't normally catch that. You know what I mean? Normally you, you have someone that's got like 15 years and then it kind of trickles down from there. This mm-hmm. meeting, you have people that literally have 40 plus years and there's three or four of them. There's people with 30 plus years and there's four or five of them. And it's just like, dude, the amount of recovery inside that room is just so incredible. And for me, when I was one, two and three years sober, I would always look at these people because they were so iconic And then to get to know them and realize that, oh, they're just human. Mm -hmm. They've just done this longer than I have. That's kind of cool. Okay, well, maybe I can borrow some of their roadmap and see. Yeah, 100%. You know? And they've just been given a free gift, which is called grace. Absolutely. They've been granted an unearned gift, which is called grace. And they've extended that out over 15, 25, 35, 45 years. And it's fun to watch those people. I fall in love with those old timers. And I see them come in and... It's really cool for me to meet a senior citizen that's got adult age children and they're entering their geriatric, you know, senior years and 70s and 80s and even 90s and just watch them start to struggle a little bit here and there with health problems or mental uh, deterioration, cognition issues, and, and just watch them still come up there and still fight and still do it. And I'm just like, I love you even more than I did. Absolutely. I love you. I love you more at 85 than I do. And when you were 75, Yeah, it's inspirational to me. You were talking earlier about the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting and early in sobriety, that didn't really, I wasn't aware that that was a thing and it didn't really track with me. I remember the first few times I was approached about attending the meeting after the meeting. And we did this big noon meeting from noon to one. And then like all these people were congregating around and they were all like talking about food and lunch and like, we're going to go here and we're going to go here. And they all looked at me and they're like, you want to come to lunch for with us? And I was sitting there and I was thinking, why? <laughs> we just spent an hour together. Yeah, I was like, why? People we just did the, We just did the meeting. All right. We all agreed. We just sat there for an hour. Why, why would I go to lunch with 16 people that were just in the AA meeting with me? And then I figured out that there was such a thing as the meeting after the meeting. And that's where a lot of times the fellowship and the deeper relationships are, are built up. Uh, a lot of times that's where the gossip play, takes place sometimes. A lot of times that's where the uh, shares that we just heard the last hour are broken down further. Um, a lot of people just get real vulnerable. And sometimes it's nothing more than just lunch. Right. You know, sometimes it's nothing more right. than just lunch. Uh, but it's really cool to go to the meeting before the meeting and after the meeting because you get to establish and mesh yourself with them in their life and see what's going on with them. And I learn just as much from people that I don't want to be like and don't want to emulate as I do from people that I do want to be like and do want to emulate. 100%. So I just follow everybody. And I li- if, if you're in an AA meeting and you think I'm not paying attention to you, you're wrong. 
Yeah. Cause I'm watching you. I'm watching, I'm watching your body language. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to your shares. I'm watching you over an extended period of time. I'm getting to know you. I'm asking you questions. And, uh, I will say that I learn that, well, let's put it this way. Everybody's worth something in Alcoholics Anonymous, even if it's nothing more than a bad example. Absolutely. So there are people. You need the bad examples. Dude, you absolutely people need that them. People come here. in there, hot mess, train wreck oh style. God, so and they, bad. They, they do nothing or they do some or they do half. And then they just, it gets even, the fire gets even more intense, the black smoke. And I'm like, okay, yes, you have served a great example for me of exactly what I don't want. Absolutely. Yeah. Dude, and there, there's, I could name. <laughs> don't do it. I could name The so recordings are. So, so many. <laughs> but a lot of people would question me after meetings. They were like, Hey man, what's the deal? I mean, why, why him? Why her? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Hey man, you know, they might have further to go, but they're here. And just remember that could be you. If you quit working, if you just start checking boxes, you just get into your routine. You don't do this thing on a daily basis. That could be you. So we need the good examples, but we damn sure need the bad examples. And I've tried to be there for the bad examples to see if they wanted to change anything. Yeah. And they don't. They don't. <laughs> they found time. that ultimate plateau. Yeah. And they're comfortable there. Yeah. And that's super dangerous for an alcoholic. Yeah. It's super dangerous to find that plateau. Yeah. Just kind of chill out. Just going to hang here for a little bit. Yeah. Now, do you... Do I constantly have to be working on my character? No, you have life. There's this thing going on out here, you know, a million miles an hour that... Totally. You know. And you're allowed regression and you're allowed mistakes and complacency. Absolutely. There's plenty of room and grace uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous for people that uh, are are in that that position. And uh, I've been in that position, I'm sure, myself many times. And uh, I just... I just, like I said it on the last episode of the year, one before, I just want to try for me, for my own welfare, selfishly to stay in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's, it. That's where I want to hang out yeah. because I've, I might not be a genius, but, I'll, but I'm damn sure smart enough to know that the safest place for me is in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I hang out on the periphery of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm either going to get picked off or I'm going to fall off, or I'm going to wander off. Mm-hmm. And those are all three death for me. Yep. And I'm not interested in death for me right now because I've been sober a long time and I got a lot of really interesting, cool things going on in my life and I don't want to fall off, wander off, or get picked off. Right. So I'm going to chill in the middle. I'm going to stay in the middle and try to live to good purpose under all conditions and try to get more God in my life and less me. Right. And that's a struggle. On a daily basis, but it's a balance. I, it is. It's a balance. I use six and seven, just like you talked about. Can we dig in a little bit to step eleven? I want to read step eleven, and then I want to hear your thoughts on step eleven. Let's talk about it. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. What styles and forms of meditation and prayer are you using today? My prayer is a lot like what's going on right here. My higher power is my very dearest friend, period. So I don't have to be on my knees. Now I get on my knees first thing in the morning, needs that respect. And I get on my knees the last thing in the day, needs that respect. But throughout the day, 
I could be in my garage working on my dirt bike and oh my God, help me here. <laughs> help me out with this. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm a little lost. Uh, driving down the road, almost get into an accident. Thank you, God. Appreciate you. Thanks for looking out. Uh, Want to lose my shit on someone in Starbucks? Don't. Thank you, God. Thank you for being there for me. Thank you for doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. I really just wanted to just light that person up. Uh, it's just a conversation. It's a conversation that I have going nonstop, you know, and it helps quiet the voices that are always going to be in my head because we all have that inner dialogue that's going on. You shouldn't have done that. Should have done this. Oh my God. Should have worn that. Oh my God. She, she's thinking this of you. I mean, you have all that shit that's going on nonstop. And for me, one of the main things that quiets that down. Hey God, thanks for being there. Thanks for looking out. Thanks for, me, thanks for getting me to this meeting. This meeting's in your hands. It's going to go whichever way you want it to. I'm just going to put this out there. You know, be with us. It's just those quick little things. Keeps me right-sized. Lets me know that I'm not running this thing. I'm hopefully being led through this thing. You know what I mean? But not running it. I don't, I don't need to run it. Yeah. I'll run it right in the fucking ditch. <laughs> Dude, it's terrible. You, you don't want me at the helm. You want me somewhere behind the helm, but not at it. It's like, dude, I'll, I'll screw this thing up real quick, real fast. All that reminds me of stuff that you've probably learned on 80, page 86, 87, and 88. Which love tells dude, us. Dude, I, I love those pages. It's a prescription for us. Love those pages. They're like, hey, man, if what you're doing is not working too well, maybe you should try this. Yeah. And it's specific. It's, it's like, very specific. Yeah, it's not like, oh, well, you know, hope you have a good day. Okay, bye. Right. It doesn't say that on 86, 87. It tells you exactly what to do. 100%. It's good. Let's talk about your wife a little bit. You've mentioned that you're married. So mm -hmm. I'm going to give a shout out to her and maybe tell us a little bit about her and y'all's relationship, how you met. You want to dig in there a little bit? Uh, we can. <laughs> I don't know how cool she's going to be with this, but she's not here right well, now. Well, you don't so. have to say your name if you can keep her on Everybody knows Brooke and I are a couple. Uh, she's been in recovery. She just celebrated 14 years. Just. Do, do I know her? Does she come to Preston? She, she comes to Preston every now and again. Okay. I don't think um, I know her. She sobered up at Preston. Um, she, she spends more time with sponsees than she does like in the rooms. Okay. But, did you meet her on campus? AA campus? Oh yeah. You did? Yeah. 100%. Okay. Um, Full disclaimer, I drove her to Maggie's to sober up, but we didn't start dating until she had a year. And then the dating was kind of not really dating, just kind of dating, because I knew that she needed time to kind of breathe. Tell people what Maggie's is. Maggie's House is a detox center for women, and they do incredible work. It's very 12-step related. They have a lot of people that come in there and give their time and energy. And they've done great things for a very long, I think like 30 or 40 years. I mean, it's been around for a long time. Yeah. It's free. Yes. It's a two-week program. Yes. And they, they get you to the point to where you can kind of launch and kind of get into sober living and so on and so forth. So she, I took her to Maggie's. Um, I met her through her mom, who was a part of those women that I sat behind that had just gotten out of treatment. Uh, and I didn't know Tammy had a daughter. Had no clue. And she showed up, and I was like, "Who's this?" 
And they were like, well, that's Tammy's kid. And I was like, I didn't know Tammy had a kid. <laughs> so, so we became friends. Uh, and then, uh, one thing kind of led to another, but, um, I drove her to Maggie's. I got her in touch with a bunch of women that would take care of her. And, um, she has really, really strong recovery. I was not as far along as she is at 14. Um, it's weird how certain people just get this and they can unfold it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and it just makes sense and they can paint the picture. That's, that's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. I got me sober. <laughs> that in and of itself was a miracle. She's one of those that she can unpack things and unfold them and paint the picture in such a way that it's just super easy to absorb. I'm like an idiot with a paintball gun. Do you know what I mean? Trying to help people out. Um, so hers is much more educational. Mine's much more experience-based. So the two of us together do really, really well. Um, it's not to say that we don't have problems. It's not to say that our relationship is perfect. I mean, it's perfect in my eyes. Um, but she keeps me very well grounded and she reminds me that my way is not always the best way. Well, that's surprising to find out when you find that out. It is. <laughs> no matter really how long you've is. been sober. Right. It's shocking. She said something to me years and years and years ago. She was, uh, she was in school finishing up her master's and she was supposed to be studying for finals. She wasn't studying, wasn't studying, wasn't studying, fucking off, watching TV, all this other shit. And I was just like, dude, are you ever going to study for finals? And uh, she was like, yeah, I am. I'm like, so I just kind of let it go. And then two, three days go by. I'm like, dude, I mean, are you going to study for finals? I mean, we kind of need you to make these finals. And she was like, dude, I got this. We're good. Will you just chill? So the third time she was like, look, man, you can study in the wrong direction. And that hit me like a hammer to the head. I was like, I've never thought about it that way. She was like, you can study in the wrong direction. And your studying isn't wrong, but you ain't going to pass this test. And I was just like, wow. She comes from that place. Like, she's so cool and so laid back that things just kind of come to her. Whereas I'm out there slinging it and just running like a madman with my hair on fire and trying to make it happen. And she's just chill on the couch, you know, she's going to, it'll come to me. It will. And I'll be damned if it doesn't. She's just got that relationship with her higher power where she just knows. And it's just so cool to watch. It's just really cool to watch. And the fact that she's my wife is even cooler. It's like, Wow. So I've learned, she'll say she's learned a lot from me. I highly doubt it. But I've learned so much from her, watching her, and also learning how to stay away from fight or flight, which is my knee jerk. I spend a lot of time there because fight or flight is kind of how I grew up. And you get to the point where you're like, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't, I don't have to be in fight or flight. I can just chill. I can turn this over. I can put this in God's hands and just let it play out. 
I can just go to work and do my thing and make a good living and go home and not be an asshole that has to go back and apologize the next day. And I don't have to set the building on fire anymore because I didn't get my way. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And these are all things that she's definitely helped me with because I can hear her. She gets through to me. You hear people, you listen to people, but you may not hear them. I can hear my wife when she says, I don't think that's a good idea. You do what you want. I don't think that's a good idea. And it's like, fuck. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Which 50% of the time it's like, I'm doing it anyway. It's like, whatever. I wish she was here and I wish I could (laughs) ask her. I wish she was here and I wish I could ask her what she learned from you. Because you just broke it down for about four and a half, five minutes on things right. that you've learned from her. You know, she's the yin to your yang, which is super exciting. And uh, I've learned a lot from my wife. My wife is not an alcoholic and she's not in the program, but I sure learned a lot from her that was not on my radar screen. Right. And I don't think I would have learned as much from her if I was drinking and oh. drugging. Because yeah, I was drinking and drugging. Right. Uh, a couple things would be going on. One, I'd be pretty numbed out. Mm-hmm. And two, I'd be really not listening to her and the frequencies that she's on and talking about um, because I'd be in survival mode. And so, but none of that's true. I'm sober now. So I am, you know, doing the best I can. And I do listen to her. And she's taught me a lot more about like, um, love and compassion and patience and um, hard work and she's shown me um, I've got to watch her go from wanting to be a mother to being pregnant to being a mother and to watch a female go through those rainbows of transitions and emotions I'm just super glad that I was sober and able and present to, to watch that. And I learned a lot from her. And you know what else I've learned a ton from is the women in Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, my God. The females in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yep. When I had 10 years sober, I was in this weird little place. I was in an excellent place. I was in an excellent place financially, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and sexually at 10 years. And I was super pumped and stoked to have 10 years sober because that's double digits, baby. And I'm super excited to get an X on my chip. So I was like really in a great place. So I was going to all these speaker meetings and like all these females are up there and my wife is pregnant with our first child at the time. And all these females are talking about love from the podium, love, love, love. And then the next chick, love, love, love. And they're putting it out there in a way that a lot of dudes probably wouldn't do it from the podium, but they were focusing on as part of their speaker talks. And so I'm like, why am I going to all these speaker meetings? Why are they all females? And why are they all talking about love? And I didn't realize what was happening. I had to realize it in hindsight that God or my higher power, whatever it was, it was not a coincidence. He was trying to download all that feminine energy and um, knowingness uh, and acceptance and, and unconditional love into me at the same time that my wife was pregnant. And so, cause I was about to get a, a, a master's course in an immersion in, in fatherhood and having a child come into my life via my wife. And so um, at first I was, I couldn't understand why I kept hearing that from these girls. And then I figured it out that they were probably sent to me to hear, or I was sent to hear them. I was supposed to receive, receive messages from them about love and unconditional love. Cause I was about to figure out go deeper and find out more about that from my family growing. And so I love beautiful, talented, powerful, 
intelligent, kind, and sober women. And there's a ton of them. Oh yeah. In our program. Yeah. Ton. And they, they, I just like to hear them talk Mm -hmm. and I like to feel their energy. And I just really have learned as much, if not more from the females in, in our program than the males. And there's a few of them who I have pulled aside privately and tried to compliment them in my own way. And I don't know how they took this statement, but there's definitely been a few of them that I pulled aside and said, listen, if I was a girl, I would ask you to be my sponsor. I love what you say in meetings. And I think you have a super, super strong uh, program. I want to talk to you about sponsorship uh, again, real quick. Uh, You've been sober a long time. I've been sober a long time. And there's this unwritten rule in Alcoholics Anonymous about the men sponsor the men, the women sponsor the women. What are your thoughts or feelings on that? And has a female, have you ever sponsored a female or has a female ever come up to you and ask you to be their sponsor? For one, I have, I've had numerous ask me, um, like what, 10? Probably. Yeah. Probably, if not more. Um, I could probably name 10 off the top of my head. Um, mostly because of my day job. I, I'd spend, you know, all day talking to women. So it's not this weird thing that goes on between me and the women inside the rooms because I'm well-versed in talking to women. Uh, and I, I'm fascinated that women come from such a different place than men and it's kind of uh it's refreshing because it's it's more grounded in truth and real you know what i mean and they don't flood it with feelings but it's kind of overlaid with it which is just not what dudes do you know what i mean we get together and it's anything but so they have more real conversations so I really dig that inside the rooms of AA. I mean, they're they're exactly the same as we are. You ask me, hey, how are you? Good. I'm good. When really they're dying inside, you know, they don't want to let that out. So I've had numerous women that have asked me, hey, do you think you could sponsor me? And my response is always the same. It's always, hey, I'm really flattered that you would ask me, but I can't. Because there's this thing that happens in the fourth step that would be super uncomfortable for you, for me, and really my wife because of what's going on there inside the fourth step. So it's that that I kind of push them more back towards women, and it's for that reason only. It's not... um, out of a bias or anything like that, but I don't want to shortchange anyone's experience. And I really think if you let your ego get in there, you could really lessen someone's experience around the fourth step. And the fourth step is huge. It's this humongously emotional thing. And I wouldn't want to take that away from anyone. Um, That being said, I always follow it up with, but I'm always around. You can always call me. And I talked to numerous women uh, inside our program that have enlightened me, my program, my life, the relationship I have with my wife. Um, Their feedback is incredible because it comes from such a different place from where I come from. Um, So my relationship with women inside AA is much like what you were talking about. It's, It's been completely enhanced because I can hear it and I wanna hear it and they just come from such a different place. Um, it's usually a little more warm and fuzzy 
than what I'm comfortable with. But now having done it for years, it it's kind of one of those things that doesn't bother me near as bad. But I, I just me personally, y'all can do whatever y'all want out there. But I would never take that away from someone that experienced with the fourth step because my first one was super powerful and everyone that I've done since has been really powerful uh, with uh, people that I've sponsored, people that I've talked to, so on and so forth. I think it really comes down to the individual. It's kind of a weird area to get into and it, it feels... <laughs> Yeah, a little it, sticky. It feels a little, little greasy. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah. Well, everybody has their own opinions and their own experiences. And, right. And we're both here to say that you can do whatever you want to do. Absolutely. But he's been asked by several women to, to be a sponsor. And he said no. And I've been asked by several women for me to sponsor them. And I've said no. And um, <clears throat> I think you really covered all the, the reasons why right. very eloquently and very well. I agree and concur with everything that you said. Um, I just think it would probably work out better for all parties involved when it comes to me that I would rather not do that. But I, having said that, I'm open to whatever you want to do and whatever you need to do, you do that. Right. Um, I've seen um, a bunch of scenarios where I have seen uh, men sponsor women and it seems to be working out fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen scenarios where, where women have sponsored men uh, and that seems to be okay. Um, but I just don't want to tread for me in that area right now. I'd rather just sponsor guys. And that's, I might change my mind in the future. Plus, I mean, it's really cool. And having, for me, I have numerous women friends inside the program Yeah, and I can text them at any time. Hey man, you got a minute? And they're like, absolutely. What's going on? Uh, just to get the women's perspective. And usually it's dealing with someone else, another woman inside the rooms. Um, usually. <laughs> I'd like to see some of those takes. Right? <laughs> Need to erase some of those. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, my relationship inside the rooms with women is, dude, I mean, it's. It's super important to my yeah, recovery. Me it's too. just super important. So important. I think co-ed meetings Very. are important. I think that, you know, men's meetings are important. Women's meetings are important. They're all important. Step study yeah. meetings, literature meetings, speaker meetings, group discussion meetings. They're all important. But I just, uh, I think that the women bring so much. And, and a big part of what I do here on this show is I do try to showcase strong, powerful, intelligent women in sobriety. And I try to push that out all the way across the globe because I think they can be inspiring and they're inspiring to me. So I want to showcase that and push Mm -hmm. that forward. I noticed you have a really cool looking ring on your finger and it's made out of silver, it looks like. And it's Mm -hmm. really cool. It looks custom made. And I'll try to explain it to the listeners. It is uh, the triangle inside of the circle, which is the depiction or our how would you explain it? That's the AA symbol. What would you say about that ring? It is the AA symbol. This one, uh, it's a hard story. We had some friends. There were two brothers that were in the program. One brother had the two rings made for each, each of the brothers. So they had two rings made. Um, one of them ended up committing suicide. And I have his ring. Um, I had told him, he used to be a member of Preston, and I told him, because he came in wearing it, and I'd just never seen one like it before. I've seen a lot similar to it, but not exactly. 
And I was like, dude, I really want that ring. Let me buy it from you. And he was like, dude, it's not for sale. <laughs> I was like, come on, dude, everything's for sale. He's like, no, it's not for sale. And he's like, both me and my brother had these made. So, you know, and I was like, all right. I was like, hey, if you ever go out, I'll buy it from you because I know how painful that can be, which was kind of a shitty thing to say, but I got it in there anyway. And he was a good friend of mine. So sure, I didn't see the guy for maybe two or three years. And he went out. And I said, hey, man, what's the deal with that ring? And it took him like two or three weeks to let go of it. But he finally let go of it. And I saw him out one night and he had it in his pocket and he handed it to me. And I was like, what do you want for it? And he was like, nothing. I don't want anything. I was like, okay. So I have it. He ended up committing suicide. And his brother approached me and said, hey, I know that he gave you that ring. And I said, yeah. He says, is there any chance? And I said, not a chance in hell. I was like, but if you ever come off your ring, you let me know because I'll buy it from you. Put a price tag on it. I don't care. And he went out. And I haven't really seen him in and around. But everyone knows. Everyone knows who I'm talking about. They know that they know that story and they know who I'm talking about. So I love this ring. I don't wear it a lot because uh, it's very it's very AA in your face. But it's really cool looking. It's it's very cool. It looks like uh, it was made by a skilled jeweler. I mean it's it's a very, it very doesn't, you can't get that one on eBay. No, you're not going to get this on eBay. That thing's super nice. Um, so uh, finish your story, and then I want to ask you. Well, go ahead and finish your story about that ring, and then I want to ask you another question about the ring. No, no, no. Go ahead. The other question I want to ask you about the ring is that is a very badass ring and it's very big and it's very like in your face and it's like, Hey, I'm an AA if, if they know what that means. So mm -hmm. has in, my question is, has anybody ever approached you and either said, a, what is that? And you tell them, or B, has anybody ever rolled up on you and just straight up recognized it and just started talking to you about it? Oh, hundred percent. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of people, I also have the AA symbol tattooed in my arm. I did which not know I that. Don't, I don't encourage people to do. Because <laughs> do you have the date on there too? No. Okay. Um, how many? But I, but I do have it in my arm. And how many tattoos do you have? I have quite a few. A bunch. I have quite a few. And how many are recovery related? Just that one? Uh. Well, I have the one that's definitely recovery related, and then I have a big giant cross on mm -hmm. my back. Mm -hmm. Um. I'm not, I'm not a big jewelry fan, you know, used to back in the day, we were all wearing necklaces and all kinds of crazy. And I just, I don't like really wearing a cross anymore, but I put one on my back. Yeah. Just kind of lets people know, do you know what I mean? It's like, Hey man, yeah, I am definitely a Christian. I am definitely down with God. Mm -hmm. Uh, and don't screw around. Yeah. But, um, I have, when I do wear it, people do comment on it. They're like, Hey man, are you a friend of Bill's? And it's like, yes. And they're yeah. like, oh, really? When did you meet Bill? And I'm like, 93. And they're like, oh, right on. Okay. Uh, I did have a guy. I was standing in line at the Harley Davidson dealership in Carrollton, mm -hmm. around 35. I'm standing there and I look down and this guy's got, he's got the A symbol tattooed on the side of his hand. Okay. Older cat. And I was like, hey, man, front of Bill's? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, right on. I was like, what year? And he, he had like four or five years at the time. And he was like, you friend of Bill's? And I was like, yeah. He's like, how long? And I spit my sobriety date out. He's sitting there doing the math. You can see him counting on his fingers and shit. And he was like, like what did you give us over when you were 10? Like, he was like, damn. He's like, son. 
I was like, where do you go to meetings? And he was like, right around the corner, you know, right there at the Carrollton Group. And I'm like, oh, right on. I'm like, dude, maybe I'll see you over there. And he's like, dude, it'd be great to see you over there. And I was like, all right. So we stood there and kind of, you know, shot the breeze a little bit. And most people don't know who the hell, know what we're talking about. Hey, friend of Bill's? Oh, hey, yeah, I know Bill. Uh, now, I do have, <laughs> kind of odd, this guy that works on my jewelry over in Snyder Plaza, uh, I rolled in there and I just happened to have this on. And he was like, oh, dude, I like that. And he was like, check it out. And he had the necklace. And I was like, oh, right on. I was like, dude, I had no idea. Are you in front of Bills? And he had no idea what I was talking about. Yeah. So apparently it was an Egyptian symbol that means something architecture. Okay. And he started going in depth about all that. And he was like, why do you have that? And I was like, dude, you know, it's the universal symbol for AA, right? And he was like, AA. And I was like, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was like, oh. <laughs> and then he kind of looked at me and he was like, oh. And I was like, dude, exactly. It's like, yeah, I'm a drunk. And he's like, oh, right on. And I was like, you know, people are going to think you're a drunk because you're, you're, <laughs> you're wearing that. a freaking ace. And, and he also had it like tattooed on his shoulder. And I was like, right on. I was like, hey, man, you do your player. But uh, it, it was kind of funny. The gnarliest AA tattoo. I was sitting on the beach in Hawaii uh, in this town called Haleiwa, and I was sitting on the North Shore at the Bonsai Pipeline on this bench, and there was not a lot of people out there that day. There was probably only like 10 people, so I'm sitting there on this picnic bag, uh, picnic table, and this guy rolls up, and he's got a Budweiser tall boy, and he sits down right next to me, and he's drinking this Budweiser tall boy. And he starts just rapping to me and I kind of look over at him and I look on his shoulder on his left bicep and he's got a big circle and a big triangle and then his sobriety date tattooed <laughs> underneath that. <laughs> and I was, I was sober in NAA at the time and I looked at that Budweiser tall boy and I looked at him. I was like, I like your tattoo, bro. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, oh yeah, man, I used to be in the program, but you know, I'm drinking right now. And I was like, okay, well I'm sober and I'm not drinking right now. I've been sober a long time. And I really hadn't been sober a long time. I think I just had like two years at that point. And it was like 20 years ago. And I, I gave my name and phone number. I was like, if you ever want to quit, call me. And he never did, of course. But he straight up had the circle, the triangle, and yep. his sobriety date. I want to read something called The Promises. And then after I read The Promises, if you could pick or select one of them that you want to talk about, that would be fantastic. Let me read those promises real quick. If we were painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we were halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change us. Fear of people and of economic security, insecurity, will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. So can you pick one of those? You will comprehend the word serenity and will know peace. I didn't know what that was. I really didn't know what that was. And even when you figure out what it is today to you, it changes. That's the cool part about what it is that we do. Um, fishermen, there's a serenity to it. There's, you know, the spiritual side of fishing. 
Anyone that fly fishes and has been doing it lifelong pursuit, they'll tell you, oh my God, it's this beautiful thing. Golfers, same thing. There's a spiritual side of it. AA is no different. There is this incredible peace and serenity that comes from once you get it down and you get the thing, and we don't talk about the thing a lot. When you have that moment of clarity, that burning bush experience, and you finally give up and just give in, and you do this thing, and you make it to the other side. If we are painstaking about this phase in our development, I wasn't painstaking the first go-around in the 80s. I was painstaking when I got here in the 90s because I didn't have any place else to go. This was it. So for me, there's this really cool spiritual side of AA that just changes and moves and kind of bobs and weaves with you. And it becomes less difficult. You become less involved with the grind. It just becomes this natural part of how you interact with the world out there in your day-to-day. And I'm super lucky, very fortunate, that I got to tap into that. My day can look however I want it to. I get up early. I'm very peaceful. I chill out at my house. I go deal with chaos all day long like everyone else. I go back home. I'm very peaceful. I'm very chill. My wife and I are very big on that inside our home, being peaceful. But it's this really cool thing. Now, I can mess my day up really bad anytime I want. I just reach over and grab that steering wheel and just fuck it all up. I mean, just so fast, so fast. When I'm just in that right frame of mind and I'm super peaceful, I just let it all go. It's like that guy that's out there fly fishing, just kicking it back and forth, got that perfect rhythm. Surfer that catches that wave, just perfect. The golfer has got that perfect swing or that perfect putt. That's what this is for me. It's just that pursuit that you have to grind for, and then you finally get it, and it just all makes sense, and there's no more grind. You're just in the vein. And I really think we get a taste of it in that first year, the pink cloud that everyone talks about. Pink cloud never has to leave. But people start fucking with you about that pink cloud. Oh, he's on the pink cloud. Oh, pink cloud. And it's like, dude, that's God's grace. That's what this thing really is. And you'll bob and weave in and out of it somewhere, you know, one, three, seven, ten. But once you can get there and you stay in it, it's so cool. It literally speaks of it nonstop throughout our text. Wearing life like a loose garment, you know, being able to just kind of move through life unaffected. That's the thing. Everyone's going to have their opinions. Everyone's going to have their point of view. Everyone's going to have, you know, the way they see you, the way you think that they see you. You're allowing them to have all that grace. That's when that painstaking part you get that peace. There's no drug like that on the planet. I mean, it's just this 
beautifully clean, pure thing that we work so hard to get. And then you get it and you're like, holy shit, this is what they were talking about. This is it. It's what keeps me going to meetings, working with others, being available for others. I have more normies that come in and sit in my chair and talk to me about how messed up their brother, their cousin, their son, their daughter. And they ask me, you know, what do you think? And I'm like, do you, do you want the canned response or do you want something real? And they usually, <laughs> they think they want something real, but they really want the canned response. <laughs> and, and I just kind of, you know, I just have the conversation with them, yeah. you know, from someone that's been there, done that. My heart goes out to the kids today. Uh, 19, 20, 25 year olds are coming in. It was, it was super difficult for me. Party's over. You're, you're going to be, you know, boring, glum. And I love what it says on page uh, 152, where, you know, the, the best part of your life is yet to come, you know, and it goes on and on and on about it. Good friend of mine pointed that out in the book, and I love that part in the book on page 152. Page 151 is one of my very favorite pages because it explains where I came from. And then page 152 is where we're all headed if we're doing this thing painstakingly. And so it's, it's this really cool thing that it's on print. But the kids today, they have so much more pressure. Self-imposed, of course, because you know, you've got social media and you've got pictures and you've got all this crap. I mean, dude, it, my hat goes off to him. It just does. I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it's got to be for them. Fuck, man, it was so difficult for me. Uh, just trying to get out of my own way. And now I'm trying to get out of my own way. And then the social media way. And then, you know, the, the, you know all the crap that's going on out there. It's like, dude. Plus, alcohol's different. Drugs are different. You know, it's much more violent. It's much more volatile. It's like, dude. I'm so fortunate and I'm so lucky that I got off the elevator when I did. And I took it really, really far down. But no matter how far down you take that elevator, this is the cool part. No matter how far down the elevator you go, it's 12 steps. 12 steps. That is beautiful. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Sober Shares. This has been a moving experience, and I appreciate your sharing your story with us. I'm going to read something from page 164 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. 
We shall be with you at the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. You got anything else you want to say? No, man. Thanks for having me. You're the best. I appreciate it. Thank you all for joining us on Sober Shares, and we'll see you on the next episode. 